0: Magic is the spell of desire in words. So words are magical. We talked about words. We, we almost went down the, the word rabbit hole, but words are magical. And in order to create a new story of value, that's not new agey, that's not human potential movement lost in its own declarations, that's not fundamentalist regressive, we need to actually create a new field of language, which is potent because it's precise, because words mean something, we use them carefully, and we haven't managed to create that level of gravitas in culture. This is Mark Goffney, and you are listening to The Life
1: Stylist Podcast. This is Luke Story, your faithful host since 2016. Man, what a different world it was back then. We have entered a new era. It's simultaneously the best of times and the worst of times, depending, of course, upon your perspective. Well, today we're going to find a way to navigate ourselves into a higher state of being, both individually and collectively. This is episode 437 featuring Dr. Mark Goffney. He is an incredible human to say the least. He's a visionary thinker, social activist, and passionate philosopher. He's known for his source code teachings, including unique self-theory, the five selves, the amoris cosmos, A Politics of Evolutionary Love, A Return to Eros, and Digital Intimacy. Astonishingly, he's also the author of 25 books, and he holds a doctorate in philosophy from Oxford University, as well as Orthodox Rabbinic Ordination. Now, I was introduced to Mark and his teachings through our mutual friend, Aubrey Marcus, with whom he's been doing some incredible work toward a better future for all. And I've got to say, man, this is one of the deepest conversations I've had on this podcast, which says a lot because there have been many, and I am thrilled to share it with you. You'll find all the juicy show notes and resources for this one at LukeStory.com slash Mark, M-A-R-C. It's hard to summarize this one as we dig into a vast range of topics in this dialogue, so I definitely encourage you to listen to it in its entirety. But here are a few of the nuggets of wisdom on which Mark and I riff. Coming to terms with the inevitable death of the body, psychedelics as a tool for the evolution of consciousness, why humans are so damn susceptible to mind control and propaganda, why God created duality, and how polarization is created by being outside of the field of love. Mark also offers his unique definition of enlightenment, three religious models to help us understand the purpose of suffering, the grandiosity of trying to change the world from the outside in embracing trauma and transmuting our shadow the three types of selves separate self true self and evolutionary self the power of 12-step principles and other universal laws the current pandemic of lost intimacy and shared values social media and Metcalf's law cosmo erotic humanism and so much more and if you find value in this conversation which i suspect you will please feel free to share it with someone you love and with that, let's give a warm welcome to Dr. Mark Goffney. Mark, here we go. Here we go. Luke, it's good to be here, man. We're about to head down a massive and deep rabbit hole, my friend. Well, here we go. Long time coming. I'm yeah. looking forward. I'm yes. so excited for this conversation. Yeah, me too. So I want to start by asking you right off the bat, who are three teachers or teachings that have profoundly impacted your life and your work? Beautiful. So one would be Isaac
0: Luria. Isaac Luria is this unimaginably brilliant and beautiful interior scientist. And I try and stay away from words like mystic because they connote things that are unclear. Interior scientist means we go into interiors, we do experiments, we validate the results of those experiments, and we establish something about the nature of the interior face of the cosmos. So, I call him not a mystic, as he's usually called. He's an interior scientist. And he's in the 16th century. And there's an entire subtle literature, not easily available, on how Luria actually shaped the Renaissance. In other words, there were these very important mystery schools prior to the Renaissance, from which Hebrew wisdom, particularly Kabbalah, esoteric wisdom, but better said, interior sciences then went into Christian Kabbalah, Christian interior sciences, if you will, and then essentially formed the mystery schools that informed the entire Renaissance and all of Western civilization. Wow. So Luria is a very, very important hidden figure. And in general, it's a different conversation. Mystery schools are important. We had in the West, the Ellusian mysteries. You know, there are, of course, Eastern mystery schools. There are Asian mystery schools. There are, you know, African mystery schools. Mystery schools are very important. So that would be one figure. Cool. Right? A second figure who is you know, unimaginably important to me was Kierkegaard. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, who talks about the relationship or the experience. Let me say it differently. The experience of trust. Right? How I live and trust. And he, he makes a number of very important distinctions between faith and trust. I think those distinctions are actually in many ways wrong. But a deep engagement with him was formative to me, for which I am, you know, eternally grateful. And a third figure who I'm kind of deeply in love with would be Blake, William Blake, right, who is an enormously, you know, an epic figure. And Blake is drawing, you know, on Luria. And maybe if I can just throw in a, you know, a fourth source, which would be a group of people, not one person. And in general, we, we ascribe too much value to one person. But there are groups of people. I'm, I'm about to put out a series of volumes at our think tank. And we have like five, six vectors of work. You know, Each one is a group of volumes. But the central set of volumes is going to be published by David J. Temple. And David J. Temple We joke about him, you know, oh, we met him in Oxford once, right? He called but he's actually a created personality and he represents myself and Zach Stein, right? And, you know, other interlocutors, but basically we realized that who wrote the Vedas? Well, we don't quite know. Who wrote the Bible? Well, not quite clear, is it? Who wrote the Zohar, which is the major work of, you know, medieval Hebrew sciences? Not quite clear, but about 10 people. And so this, we have this very win-lose metrics, Western notion of the author. And the author is important, and unique self is important as central to my thinking. And yet there's also unique self-symphonies. And so there was a particular unique self-symphony of characters, three, eight, or 10 is not clear, who wrote this work called The Zohar, a three-volume work called you know, the, the Work of Radiance, which is a very subtle, sophisticated, unimaginably beautiful Aramaic text, was a formative text in my life where I still kind kind of live inside of. And that was the text which really defined Luria and then the Renaissance afterwards. It's one of those hidden esoteric texts of Western civilization. So that's a that's a little bit of a. Cool. There's
1: lots of other ways to go, but our show notes writer's gonna be busy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. It's funny how you mentioned though the conglomerate of authorship, right, and creation, right. and what came to mind is we were just talking about the magic of music earlier before we recorded, right. and right when you said that, I thought of you know think of the Beatles, right, the archetype right. of just the ultimate supergroup, and each right. individual part of that group as a person had their own unique expression, right. their own. Body of talent, right? But put them together, and now you have this this other entity, right? And that's what music is, isn't it? Yeah.
0: And there's a commitment to the music. You know, they they asked um, Mick Jagger, you know, once, who was uh, actually you know was an old acquaintance of my partner uh, KK. So they asked Mick, like, how did the Stones make it? And he said, you know, we had so many conflicts and so much went wrong, but we had a vision of this horizon called the stones that we were all in devotion to? And it's actually a great answer. You know, in other words, at the think tank, as we're trying to write this new story of value in response to the meta crisis, what we realized was we have to go larger than the win-lose metrics in which we are cultural critics or public intellectuals or spiritual teachers, but basically we're in a win-lose metrics game, trying to get a big book out, you know, doing a series of tours. It's basically we're commodifying spirit. And (laughs) we're we're basically, and there's so much is is like that, right, on this. So we said we have to liberate ourselves from that and find this, and if I can use a word that we don't use often, we're almost embarrassed by it, but kind of purity, devotion, sincerity, right? Those words that, you know, we use them as booby prizes, right? Uh, she's not very talented, but she's very devoted. <laughs> right,
1: right, right. <laughs> he's not very smart, but um, he's very sincere. The word purity, though, to me, I mean, I, I see the puritanical, pious, kind of right. the one definition of it. But when I hear that word, what I hear is integrity. Right. Yeah. I like that word. Isn't it a beautiful word? Yeah. Yeah, purity. I love words. Words are
0: so gorgeous. That would take us down. But, but purity is a... So that's why we came up with David J. Temple you know, and <laughs> David J. Templeton. So he's actually putting out his first book in, you know, two, three months on value. And maybe, maybe when that comes out, we'll talk again. We're wildly excited about it. And to try and put a new great library into culture that can actually evolve the source code of consciousness and culture in response to this meta crisis. So that's all
1: by way of saying hello. Hi. That's great. It's so great to be here. I often ask that question at the at the end of a uh, a podcast, you know, give us three teachers, three takeaways. Like in other words, so you have this body of knowledge and wisdom, said guest, and uh, where'd you get it, you know? But I, for some reason, I wanted to start with that, yeah, because I knew you'd have a really interesting answer. Uh, how would you define enlightenment? Huh? From where you are in, in your work and perspective right now, it's a great question, and this is actually quite
0: clear, right? I think enlightenment actually can only mean one thing. Right, enlightenment is sanity. That's what enlightenment is. It's that simple. Wow, I like that. Right, enlightenment, and actually, any other understanding of enlightenment has to come back to this. That's it. Insanity means I know the nature of reality. I know who I am. So, for example, let me just give a simple example. If I say, um, "Hey, I'm Luke," no, 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 you're not Luke. No, I'm Luke. You're you're Mark. So that might be slightly funny in the first second, or or not. Right? But if I keep at it, it's like 15 minutes. You say, "Wow, this is a little scary." I heard he was controversial, but didn't know he was insane. Right? Another. T- <laughs> <laughs> right? And I was like, "I don't know who I am." Right? But here's the the strange thing: the difference between Luke and Mark. You know, roughly the same age. Luke's a little better looking, but basically two guys. You know, you know, roughly you know, some distinctions. we Each have uniqueness is very important, but there's some overlap. But if I think I'm Luke, I'm insane but i don't know who i am but the gap between thinking i'm a separate self and actually knowing my true nature right as what i call unique self the unique expression of the field of consciousness and desire and actually knowing that that entire field actually lives in me and i am a discrete and irreducibly unique expression of that field the difference between that and thinking that i'm a separate self is a far wider gulf than the mistake yeah. of Luke and Mark. Now, of course, KK and Allison might be quite upset about us making that mistake,
1: right? <laughs> but, <in other> words, <laughs> but the
0: rest of the world could deal with it.
1: Well, yeah. So enlightenment is sanity. Right. Knowing my true nature. That reminds me of, yeah. there's two different ways you could frame the statement, I am God, right? One could be messianic insanity, and one could be the factual truth that in the field of consciousness, <laughs> I and you are but one expression of God, right? right? But we're not separate from, we're a part of just one little unique thread in the tapestry. Yes. But it depends on the framing, right? Right. Right. No, No, that's very beautiful. And just
0: let's emphasize that word unique, which is a whole other conversation. But I am God doesn't mean that I'm absorbed into the divine and I'm therefore lost. It means I'm inseparable from the larger field of consciousness and desire. A, and then as you say, but I'm an, irreducibly unique expression of that love intelligence and that love beauty and that love desire so I'm not true self that's the great mistake of the traditions it's virtually all enlightenment traditions are flawed they fail because they claim that enlightenment is the move from separate self to true self I'm separate now I realize I'm part of the one that's only the first step and if you stay there you actually remain insane (laughs) <laughs> right, right. And that's really, really important. Virtually every enlightened tradition makes that mistake. So can we play with this for a second? Is that okay? I love it. Okay, so let's say separate self is a puzzle piece looking for the puzzle who's told there is no puzzle. So first of all, it's hard to walk as a puzzle piece. Have you ever tried that? Right? It doesn't work. And you're told there's no puzzle. So it's completely pathologizing. It's crazy making. True self is the realization. And no, I'm not a separate puzzle piece. There's just the puzzle, the one. That's true self. But that's equally insane making because you look at the puzzle and you see, oh, but there's these lines separating the puzzle pieces. Then you say to your teacher, but what about these separate lines? And your teacher says, sit on the cushion, die on the cushion. Illusion, right? In other words, this huge tradition, both in West and East, both esotericism, which say that's an illusion, but you know that's not true. Because actually, I'm Luke. That Separateness is not an, a delusion in the mind of oh God. And so, no, no, then you've got to get to know no. unique self is a puzzle piece that fits perfectly into the puzzle. A puzzle piece that perfectly fits into the puzzle. So I'm a unique self, I'm a puzzle piece. And I fit perfectly and I actually complete the puzzle perfectly. And no other piece other than my piece can complete this puzzle. That's unique self. So I'm the irreducibly unique expression of the field of true self. So now I'm getting to enlightenment. But then that's not enough because enlightenment doesn't include evolution. And this is, again, this, this is so critical. This is why I said to my friend, Michael Murphy, who he has a little place called Esalen on the West Coast. I said, Michael, you're not impacting right, the mainstream because you're basically teaching uneven bullshit, right? You have anyone teaches it's all, no one captures the flag, it's all uneven. And the enlightenment you're teaching is completely against the intuitions of Western civilization that actually my uniqueness counts. And there's no evolution in it. So the fourth level of self is evolutionary unique self. So I'm a puzzle piece that not only completes the puzzle, I'm a puzzle piece that evolves the puzzle. So in other words, so Luke's story And the story of Luke's story, if you will, right? That story is not just a story you're supposed to move beyond. That story is chapter and verse in the universal love story. It's chapter and verse in God's sacred autobiography. The irreducible uniqueness of Luke's story, not his separateness. So notice we're making a fundamental ontological distinction, which is lost in the traditions. They all get this wrong. They conflate separateness and uniqueness. Huge mistake. Separateness is not uniqueness. Right? So I move beyond my separateness. I'm one with the field, then I'm an irreducibly unique expression of the field. The field is seamless, but it's not featureless. And its irreducibly unique feature is Luke, who is, and this is the most shocking idea in the interior sciences Luke is more God to come. In other words, Luke's not just, I am God, Luke is more God than there was before Luke, right? So he's not just, he's part of God. No, actually, there, divinity experiences a, a shocking self-recognition looking at Luke that wasn't available to divinity before, right? And if we want to make that kind of very just available. Beautiful. so good. It's stunning. If you make just yeah. available to your listeners, you could say it this way. I was just talking to our mutual friend, Aubrey. So I had a certain experience talking to Aubrey. I walked in and I saw you from a distance. I remembered just, you know, our meetings and like something opened in me and some other part of me, like I could actually feel it. Oh, Luke. So Luke evoked in me a part of me that Aubrey didn't. And hopefully Mark will evoke something in Luke that Jack didn't. So it's precisely how it works. That's the anthropological method, meaning whatever's happening in reality happens in us So Luke evokes in divinity a dimension of divinity that no other being that ever was, is, or will be can evoke. That's actually a shocking realization. But once you get it, it's actually obvious, like all great. And in that sense, if Luke isn't clarified, if he's not living Luke's unique self, there's quite literally less divinity in the world. You could throw out the Prozac for at least a little while. (laughs)
1: <laughs> right? right? I mean it's just stunning. That also uh fits in. It's funny the way the way you approach things is so much more um intellectual and academic, you know. So I translate things as you're saying into more simplistic broad strokes, which is fun, you know, because you're the unique expression of you as God and and me as me, but in thinking about the way I view solving human dilemmas yeah is by the elevation or evolution of consciousness right and it, it takes the futility out of it and actually makes it interesting to me because i know that the only way that i can contribute to the field is by doing whatever i can to contribute to my own expression of the field right beautiful so it's like but the way you phrased it there's now more divinity because i'm expressing that and imagine if A world in which more people were expressing sanity, enlightenment, enlightenment is sanity, right? Right. And the inertia of more awakened souls and human bodies—it's like the rising tide raises all boats, kind of thing, you know. it's, It's really, it's beautiful. And I'm going to be with permission. Yeah. You get, always have permission to thank just you. So this might jump
0: be, in. And, this next sentence might get me uninvited to any future podcast, <laughs> but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it anyways because what, what the hell, right? Which is A, nothing you said was simplistic. So you said, I, I'm going to be simplistic. And it wasn't simple, it was clear. Hmm. So I want to disambiguate simple and clear. And what you were doing was Fair. not simplistic. It was actually what I would call kind of a, it's what I call anthro Anthro, human, ontology, it's for real, meaning I can load the mysteries you're within and I can locate it, I can say it in terms of what I call second simplicity. take a lot of complexity, and I think one of your gifts is you know, and i I hopefully we share that it's the second simplicity, so that's one, but that that matters not simplistic, second simplicity two is this is the the slightly bigger pushback, right, which is actually nothing I said was either intellectual or academic, right, and so I want to just kind of right academic implies a kind of you know. Rarified discipline in the ivory tower that is kind of, you know, jargon-laden and kind of, you know, siloed in particular disciplines and not connected to a broader picture. So I'm going to throw that word out entirely. And intellectual, you know, suggests that it lives in, in the mind and it kind of divorces the mind from the belly right, and from the soma and from the feeling tone. And so I've never in my life, Luke, you know, brother, right? And I've never thought of a good idea ever. Literally without, hyperbole without, I've always felt an idea. Mm. Like you feel it. You feel it just kind of like, right? It's in your gut and it just stays. In. And then I look for words to spell feelings. I look for words to spell desires. Magic is the spell of desire in words. So words are magical. We talked about words. We, we almost went down the, the word rabbit hole, but words are magical. And in order to create a new story of value that's not new agey, that's not human potential movement lost in its own declarations, that's not fundamentalist regressive, we need to actually create a new field of language, which is potent because it's precise, because words mean something, we use them carefully, and we haven't managed to create that level of gravitas in culture, right? We have just an enormous amount of uneven superficiality with some gems of wisdom. Right, like yourself but we need now to create a field of language which doesn't become a homogenizing story but we need a kind of a what i would call a universal grammar of value a global story as a context for our diversity and if we don't get that i'm fairly convinced and i have been for the last decade or so we mentioned my friend daniel daniel and i have been talking about this for a decade i'm fairly convinced that the meta-crisis will result in one of several possible dystopias, none of them which are looking good. And meta-crisis is not our topic, um, so we won't go there, but but it's real. The meta-crisis is real. and, And the response to this meta-crisis of kind of existential risk, the death of humanity, or what I call the second form of existential risk, the death of our humanity, right? Upgraded algorithms, downgraded human beings, right? And that whole story. So the response to that, There's lots of work on infrastructure and our friend Daniel is doing a lot of work on infrastructure, which is really important. You know, how do you detect bioweapons and wastewater, infrastructure, social structure, second possibility, how do you regulate AI research? How do you create social bodies? So there's infrastructure and social structure, Marvin Harris's distinction. And I think they're both important. I don't think either of us will take us home although we need to do that. But there's a third category, which superstructure. Superstructure is the story I live inside of. And I'm convinced, brother, right, based on lots of information that I won't bore you with now, that the only way to respond to the meta crisis, the only thing that actually evolves the story of history is a new story. Not a fanciful story, not a conjectured story, but a story that integrates the validated insights of pre modern, modern, and post modern into a new story of value rooted in first values and first principles. And in that, we need to be precise in our language. And in that sense, science needs to inform us. Science and poetry need to come together. Language needs to evoke, to invoke, to be poetic, but it also needs to be precise, no less than scientific language. The interior sciences need to be precise. So I apologize, that was a long, tender, honoring, play with the word intellectual and academic.
1: Let's take a minute here as I would love to share my latest discovery with you Lifestylist listeners. As soon as I tried this product, I became instantly obsessed, and it's now officially a non-negotiable ingredient in my morning smoothie and sometimes even coffee. First time I tried it, I felt focused, uh, my mind was clear, and it continues to improve my mental performance on the daily. I actually had some in my smoothie this morning and will likely do another scoop in some water for my afternoon work block to keep this brain pumping. You're probably hip to the superpowers of mushroom extracts and collagen protein. Well, the product I'm talking about here contains the most hyper-concentrated forms of four of the best brain-boosting mushrooms. So that's lion's mane, chaga, cordyceps, and reishi, plus collagen protein and Peruvian cacao. This magic in a jar, my friends, is called Collagenius, And I love that it turns your brain on without any jitters or crash whatsoever. It's super clean brain energy. So if you're getting beat down with the old brain fog, have difficulty focusing, and want to repair your brain in the most natural way, you definitely want to check this stuff out. Here's what you do. Go to Newtopia.com slash LukeGenius and use the code Luke10 at checkout and save 10%. That's N-O-O-T-O-P-I-A, Newtopia.com slash LukeGenius. And check this out. Newtopia, the company that makes College Genius, is so confident that you'll love this product that they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. So uh, there's no risk for you here to check this out. Again, your link is newtopia.com slash LukeGenius, and the code is Luke10. Do it now, you guys. Your brain will thank you.
0: I appreciate the distinction.
1: Yeah, Yeah, total. And you're you're talking to someone who loves language. (laughs) I like I love listening to podcasts, recording podcasts, having conversations. I like foreign languages, although I'm only decent at one other one. (laughs) Uh, Spanish. I got a little (laughs) Spanish down. But I I love words because of the power that they pack, especially words that are rooted in fundamental principles right and i I think i got this and this is something i beautiful was flirting with the idea of going into this but i I didn't know if you had any uh experience or understanding of it but when i came to really understand the power and words and what they represent was through many years of of devotion to the 12 steps and adopting those into my life first out of just desperation and self-preservation but then always a good place to start then, dig, you know, dig, digging underneath and going, wow, there's, I mean, you can take one word like surrender, acceptance, willingness, open-mindedness, humility, Absolutely. amends, like all those just, they're now to me like, well, yeah, duh, that's how you live your life, right? But for someone who had no moral compass and wasn't instilled with any sense of morality or value, value. as you say, Um uh, finding those words and teasing them apart and digging into the root of those words and building a relationship with the energy that they represent. It's gorgeous. There there have been signposts that have guided me. Turn left, turn right. Don't turn that way. You're falling out of truth. You're falling out of integrity, right? So those words led me into all sorts of other words. So when I say like academic or intellectual, I like that. Yeah. It's just the way that like if I get into some dense content... (laughs) it's the, the way that I can integrate it and digest it is by teasing it apart and finding a relationship to my heart yeah. with that. Like what, beautiful. what's the, um, the language of the heart, right? Yeah. Like how do, I, how do I imbue it yeah. with, with feeling? Gorgeous. Gorgeous. Uh, back, to, back to enlightenment. Yeah. As we all have, but I'll just speak subjectively. There was a lot of suffering in yeah. the first half of my life. Yeah, Uh, And so when I started to seek God, I started to follow different spiritual teachings and teachers and put this prize on self-realization or enlightenment. And my early understanding of it was just not just sanity, but the end of suffering. Like if, if it's like a destination, if I can get to this point where I have... Less close relationship with the ego, with the destructive parts of the intellect, then I'll be free and I won't have any problems, you know? So it's like chasing the carrot of enlightenment. Right. How did that work for you? Well, <laughs> not very well. Right. But I think, and this I want to dig yeah, more no, out, and, but I think there is some truth based on your framing of it as just fundamental sanity, right? And going back to the puzzle and all of that, but is not less suffering in your experience inherent through the experience of more sanity, right? The the more sane one is, the less one suffers. So it's like, even though maybe the goal isn't to evade the human experience of suffering and being embodied, but as I become more sane, meaning for me, more aligned with truth, with fundamental universal truth, then... There's less inherent suffering because I have a more broad contextualization of what we're fucking doing here. Yeah. And so water does tend to roll off the duck's back a bit easier when you're wearing the world like a loose garment. No, you got a better context for the duck. <laughs> right. And right. Think, <laughs> things are just less serious, you know? So I don't, yeah. I don't know if I'm enlightened, but I'm, I'm certainly more enlightened than I was a year ago, five years ago, 20 years ago. It seems yeah. to be I'm becoming more sane. There's no. It's mean, very
0: beautiful. So let's let's take a couple of a couple of steps here. First, let's just talk. You talked about two things. Let's talk for a second about words, and then we we'll go to enlightenment. Okay, words research. are so beautiful.
1: I love how you can track all my. No, so it's well. That's just beautiful. With... The
0: word. The word is so great. So, adikadabra, magic. So adikadabra is actually two Aramaic words, avra kadabra. I create through the word. It's very beautiful. I create through the word, so that it's the. The creativity of the word. And the word itself, the word in Hebrew, the word for for word in Hebrew is d'Avar, d A V A R, which means both thing and word. Meaning, there's meaning or value or aliveness or logos or the word or information. If we want to use that, so information, meaning, value, the word logos, let's use those as a cluster of words that go all the way down, meaning the thing isn't only an inanimate thing. In the word word, in Hebrew, davar, D-A-V-A-R, you have both thing and word, meaning the thing is alive right? It's self-actualizing. It's self-organizing. And so we, we start the first nanoseconds of the Big Bang, and we've got these three quarks, which kind of come together. And from these three quarks, we get Beethoven, <laughs> right? We get, we go from dirt to Shakespeare. We go from, you know, mud to Mozart. We go from, you know, bacteria to Bach. We get the idea, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Those are all really good. right? Right? I think
0: there's a book title in there <laughs> right, somewhere. Right, there's somewhere some right? Yeah. But no, it's, why? Because the thing... Is a word. So words are magic. And, and you can see the twinkle in your eye, you know, when you get, you get the magic of words. And when words aren't magic, they betray something. So there's something very beautiful. And I'm going to, you know, we could use Sanskrit and we could use French literature, you know, we could use, you know, Buddhist texts. But my native set of texts, and I, I love all those sets of texts and play in them, but my kind of native original set of texts is kind of Aramaic Hebrew. So, I often kind of go back there. And so, in Hebrew, so we all know there's an alpha. So, alpha is Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, alpha waves, Aleph. And Aleph is the silent letter. So, Aleph is the deep silence beneath the word, all right? But not a silence of absence, but a silence of presence, a silence in in which no word could capture the depth of that, right? Your best moment with Allison, whatever that moment was. Sometimes it's a silent moment. There's just nothing to say, right? KK and I, were sitting together and we just get quiet. And we're just in the space together. And so we're in that silence that's beneath words. And then the word emerges. And the word is supposed to give shape, to dress the silence and to ornament the silence. That's what the word does at its best. But the word can also betray the silence because words actually, they're, they're opposites joined at the hip. So in Hebrew, you have Aleph, the depth of silence, silence of presence. Then you have BCD. So A, Aleph. Then BCD, Beit Gimel Dalad, which means Beged, which means betrayal. Right? So it's the, the betrayal of the word is when the word doesn't ornament the silence. When, when the word becomes alienated from the silence. And, and there's really, in some sense, I'd say there's, there's two kinds of people. And there are, both kinds are beautiful, but one's trustable and the other's not. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. Meaning, in, in other words, there are people who speak, you can feel that their words come from the silence, that there's silence underneath the word. And there's other kinds of people, and those two kinds of people could be us at different moments in our lives also, right? Where, where we speak to cover up the silence. Ah, oh,
1: so good. Right? And that yeah. distinction is so, so just that's just a, a word on word that was so <laughs> yeah, important. That's great. It reminds me of, uh, yeah. and
0: I know you'll track the other yeah, part. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Enlightenment, suffering. We're going to come yeah, back yeah. to it. Okay. But it,
1: it reminds me of uh, something a teacher <laughs> used to tell me about music. And he would say, Luke, the music's not the notes. The music's what's behind the notes. It's Beautiful. sort of like that silent under the word, Beautiful. you know? And there's Beautiful. like, why does a, a certain note or a combination Beautiful. of notes that comprise a chord elicit a feeling? Like, what is that, <laughs> you right. know? Right. What is that and why? What is that and why? It that, doesn't really matter, but we know that it's true, right? And it's literally true. When you look at the science of
0: music, which is a separate podcast, it's one of the things I'm most fascinated by. It's so important, the science of music. But music emerges, what music is originally is the rhythm between the pulsations. And it's about the space in between and it's the, how that space in between, how the moments in between then create music. So music is actually literally created from
1: the space in between. Right. Right. Right, and the space in between is ah, that's so cool. Just like sound, silence. Sound is created by the or not created by, but exists because there's the silence beneath it. Literally, if there wasn't a context in a field of silence, there would be no noise. There would be no sound. That's right. And so, so music arises at the very beginning of the
0: space-time continuum. Right, and that's very, very beautiful. Now, let's let's shift back. You know, to the second very beautiful opening which is the relationship of enlightenment to suffering. And that is, it's such an important topic. And it's so confused, both in the writings, right, of many of the traditions. And so let's try and make a distinction. The more clarified my awareness, the more I'm in the depth of true nature, the more... Unnecessary suffering falls away. Right. So I, I walk in and I say, wow, this is a really nice room in Luke's house. And this is a really spacious downstairs. And it felt so great. Why is this not my house? <laughs> right? In other words, right. So they say, oh, well, actually, that's not my story. I didn't, right. And as we have different vectors and different stories, so that I get to walk in and be really excited that Luke and Allison live in this beautiful place. Right. So that'd be a, just a simple, banal example. Right. In other words, Unnecessary suffering, right? So I can, you know, by clarifying my own identity and becoming more sane, I don't confuse my identity with yours. Iago goes after Othello, right? And is just completely eviscerated in his interiors by Othello's eros and goes to murder him, right? And so jealousy, contraction, pettiness, right? All come from a dissociation from my own true nature, and from my own unique true nature. Right? And as jealousy always means, I want to be you in some way. And if I want to be you, it means I'm actually not, if, if I'm I because you're you and you're you because I'm I, then I'm not I and you're not you. I have to actually be in devotion to your you ness. And I can only do that if I'm located in my true nature. So, yes, absolutely. The Buddha wasn't wrong, you know, in his developmental sequence that enlightenment reduces suffering. That's absolutely true. And. There's a quality of suffering that's mystery. And this is, this is just so important. We, we try and explain suffering because we want to get a handle on it. So we try and explain it through classical religion. You sinned, now you're being punished. Sin and punishment, that's one move. That's a Western tradition move, classical Western religion. The Eastern move is not you sinned, your mind wasn't clear, right? Your mind wasn't clear, you couldn't get clarity to mind, so therefore you suffer. Move two. Move three in intellectual history is kind of very, very popular in the contemporary kind of new age human potential world, you attracted it into your life, right? How many times have we heard that, right? You, what did you do to attract that into your life? And, and go, go seek <laughs> how you, right? right? Yeah. All funny. three of those moves. Some people call that victim shaming. Victim shaming, right? <laughs> right, and there's, there's, and there's quite a bit of that. But if you go to... But I don't, you,
1: I don't entirely believe that's true, but that, that is complex. kind of a mind virus we have now. It's right? a mind...
0: And there's some truth. And, and each one of these three is true but partial. It's not that they're completely wrong. Right? There's a, there's a spark of truth in each one of them. And each one of them, if you kind of step out and look at the broad field, they're all making the same move. And the move is, you can get a handle on the suffering thing which is beautiful. That's part of human agency and human power and human capacity for transformation. And it's also a move for control at the same time. There's a subtle move for control. In other words, if I sinned and therefore I'm being punished, I could stop sinning and not get punished, right? If I'm suffering because my mind's not clear, I could get my mind clear and not suffer, right? If I attracted into my life and that's why I'm suffering, I could not attract it into my life by doing some you know, inner transformation, I'll do the avatar seminar, I'll do the forum, you know, and I'll, I'll get it handled or, or life spring or whatever it happens to be. Right. And, and those are all legitimate. I, I want to just, just a blessing to yeah. that. You know, um, Werner Earhart called me a bunch of years ago. We had a, a couple of great talks and we sat actually at a lobby of a hotel in San Francisco for five hours and just compared notes. We had a great time. And I think Werner did a great job at doing a particular thing, you know, and not to, such a great job at doing some other things, but he made a real contribution. And so there's, all these things are true, but partial. And in the end, one of the first principles and first values of cosmos is what we know and what we don't know. So there's gnosis, that which we can know, and that which we can actually get certainty on. And we know things. Postmodernity was wrong when it said we don't know anything. You know, we know shit. Right? Gnosis is a real possibility. And there's a mystery. And mystery means, wow, we don't know. And we're actually able to live in the mystery. And the more I love, the more I can hold uncertainty. It's a paradox, right? The less I love, the more I need certainty. And even in relationship everywhere, the less I love, the more certainty I need to replace the fullness of the eros of love. The more I love, the more I can hold uncertainty. And so there's a dimension of cosmos, which is mystery. And suffering, after all the explanations, when I was 29, Luke, I sat for six months. I didn't move out of like one room and I wrote a 400 page, you know, way too footnoted kind of deep meditation on suffering. Because it's, it's, right, what do you do with suffering? Right, what do you do with suffering? Which is, and so there's a dimension of suffering that's mystery that can't be addressed by not attracting into your life and it can't be addressed by clarifying your mind and knowing your true nature and it can't be addressed by sin punishment there's a dimension of mystery in the world now the way we can respond is two ways one is we go to heal suffering that's not an answer that's a response meaning it's a mystery but we get to respond we live in a world of outrageous pain and the only response is outrageous love so we actually go to heal to transform. That's one response. And the other response is, is we realize that the fact of suffering and even the fact of evil, that evil and suffering are not what tell us that there's no goodness, truth, and beauty, which is the classical position you'll heal all, all over the place, right? It's how could you say, how could you speak of goodness, truth, and beauty? How could you speak of spirit? Take a look at Rwanda. Right, tech like, I mean, Deepak uh, Chopra sent me his, a, a little while ago a book that he put out with uh, Leonard Mladenow, um a few years ago. It was called, uh, what was it called? He was all excited about it. He, it was called War of the Worldviews. And in it, you know, Leonard, is a Caltech physicist, essentially basically says, you know what? Fuck this, right? My, my mother was in Auschwitz, you know, and here's what happened. And there was a commandant who walked behind, you know, 10 prisoners and randomly you know, killed one and then killed the third one and killed the fifth one. Like, don't, don't give me any kind of like, Deepak, go away. That was a good question. Deepak didn't respond to it because the assumption is there's nothing to respond. There is. And the response is so subtle. It's so profound. It's so beautiful, which is the only reason we're bothered by evil, the only reason suffering offends us is because we live in an intimate universe. We live in a, a universe which is good and true and beautiful. And because, because we think the world should be just and it should be fair, that actually is the God force in us. And hence that which thinks the world should be fair and good and that truth and beauty are real and that there's a pattern of intimate beauty to cosmos is wildly offended by suffering. But if the world was just a reductive materialist world, if it was happenstance, if it was you know Shakespeare, a tale told by an idiot full of sounds and fury signifying nothing, what's the problem with evil? Why, why would you expect there not to be suffering? Of course, there's suffering. It's just a mechanistic, random world, tell-told by an idiot. You know, Faulkner rewrote that book, The Sound and the Fury, based on Shakespeare. No reason to expect it to be any different. But we do expect it to be different. We're wildly offended, devastated by suffering, right? You know, you know Brothers Karamazov, right? I'm offended even in Alyoshtok. I'm, affa- I'm offended. It, it's, we view suffering as repulsive to the God force. That's true, right? Which is why we know there's a God force. Right? And other t- we're offended by suffering because the universe is good. And that's very beautiful. All of a sudden you realize, oh, the great question of suffering is not an answer, but it tells you that you live in, the- in an intimate universe because suffering or evil is a failure of intimacy at its core. So
1: that was a lot. Was that too much? It's never too much. On to the... The existence of suffering and evil, which you kind of say are uh, partners, right? Partners in crime, right? Right. There's there's a lot there's a lot to say about disambiguating them, but for now, I mean, just to say, like, evil generally uh, manifests <laughs> as some degree of suffering for someone, right? Right. So, well, for now, we'll leave the. They can be split apart, and they should be split apart. But for now, we can okay, we can hold them. We'll together. bucket them temporarily. Temporary bucket. I am not uh, an atheist. You know, I. I've had experiences in my life that unequivocally proved to me that there is some universal, omnipotent, loving force present in me and around me, and everything is imbued with that. Yeah. Not all the time because I lose my awareness of it, but still at times it's been difficult for me to reconcile, and I'm sure this is much more difficult for someone who's atheist or agnostic, is the existence of evil. It's that. Question, well, if there's a God, then what about Rwanda, right? Right. And this is something I've teased apart in all sorts of experiences, meditations, ceremonies, et cetera. And the closest that I can get to reconciling the duality, let's just call it duality, is that since this thing that we refer to as God is infinite and it's only one thing, in order for it to experience itself, it seems to manifest itself infinitely as all things. And those things from our subjective positionality, we would call, well, good over here and evil over here, but it's all God. So that's the first part, right? And and second part is that, speaking of just the earth realm here, That if there was no suffering and if there was no existence of evil, in other words, if there wasn't a spectrum uh, of consciousness that could be traversed from low to high and vice versa, the world would be pointless if the purpose of the world and our being here is to... Burn negative karma and to gain positive karma. In other words, it's like the duality that's created and the suffering and the evil and the bliss and the love. Right. Right. And all of that is here with the purpose because it gives us an opportunity to go to school. Right. Right. It's like if you send a graduate, postgraduate student to kindergarten. There would be very little utility value in that experience, right, right. so we seem to need this broad spectrum of a playground here, right? right Where I can, through my own agency and my will, right, have the opportunity to be a serial killer or a saint, right? And if we were all saints, then there would be nowhere there would be no elevation to which we aspired to go.
0: Yeah. Yeah. See. See. Here's the thing. What's your take on yeah, yeah, that? No, no, that I,
1: no, realm? I guess. I, I guess what I'm saying is I've reconciled duality by finding a value in it for myself. That I right. now have something that I can do here.
0: Yeah. No. No. Yeah. And you're you're taking the tack and very beautifully and very eloquently of the classical religions. Okay. And they they basically go in that direction. And there's some pretty wise people there. So you're in good company, right? Okay. And, and there's some real truth in that, right? Choice. Right. Without choice, we couldn't transform, right? The transformation of the human being can only happen in this field of duality, right? And that's all true. Okay, and? And <laughs> those are called, those are called in the great traditions, theodicies. Okay. How do we explain suffering? And there's, there's some deep and real obvious truth in them, and they're insufficient. Okay. Right? Because when you look at a, a baby suffering, right? When you look at 12,000 people gassed a day in Auschwitz, there's nothing you can say in the face of burning children. There's no words that. And one of religion's great mistakes was its attempt to explain suffering. Before we explain suffering, we have to actually say, I don't know. We actually have to hold the mystery and say, here's what we do know. We know that our experience, you described your personal experiences that brought you to some sense of knowing That the world has order and has meaning and, you know, has goodness, right? And so you know those experiences are true. I can actually have a a firsthand direct experience of goodness, truth, and beauty, of order, of cosmic consciousness, of, you know, meaning. I know that's true. And I know I can't explain the suffering. And so I actually, like I do in a love relationship, I hold the mystery, right? So I, (laughs) I live in that space which I'm madly in love with reality and I know that love is real. I know that we live in a cosmoerotic universe in which eros is real. And I can't explain suffering and I live in that mystery. And I think spirit loses people when it attempts to explain suffering. And it's when Deepak attempted to explain it to Mladenov he lost him. Correctly so, right? And, you know, there's this moment in the in the original Genesis text when God, the God force, and when we say God, the God you don't believe in doesn't exist. So whatever God means, whatever that, the force of meaning and goodness in cosmos, I, I often refer to God, Luke, as not the infinity of power, but the infinity of intimacy. Hmm. And, you know, in each generation, we need a new name of God. So, mm-hmm. We're trying to write a new story of value, you know, at the center in response to the metacrisis and the name of God that we've kind of emerged, and she kind of whispered in our ear is we call God the infinite intimate. God is the like infinite that. intimate. It's beautiful, right? God's the yeah. infinite intimate. So the, the infinite intimate says to Abraham, I'm going to destroy, you know, the famous story, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So Abraham should say. God's talking. God's clearly got this calculation worked out. Okay. I mean, God's the ultimate spiritual teacher. And Abram says, really? No. And God said, what do you mean? I'm God. You're Abram. And Abram says, no, actually, no. And Abram says, Will the, the judge of the whole world not do justice? And the implication in there is that Abram challenges the divine And refuses to accept any explanation for human suffering. God says, no, no, here's why I'm doing this. I got discovered, I'm God. And he says, No, sorry. I reject any explanation for human suffering. And that's a theme all through the lineage, is that any explanation for human suffering is not kosher. Any move to do theologic, right? Theology, theologic of different actually deadens our sensitivity to the suffering. We actually have to look at the suffering and scream, right? We live in a world of outrageous pain and and don't use any theology or any metaphysics to deaden our sensitivity to the pain. And actually, when we look at suffering, one of my masters, he died um, in the early 19th century, Nachman of Breslov, who Kafka loved, says that when you see suffering, you have to become an atheist. But not that you suspend belief or trust in the meaningfulness of cosmos, but you have to take the response to it on yourself. You see, a poor person, you're an atheist. There's no God to take care of it. You take care of it. It's yours to do. So that's what I mean. We live in a world of outrageous pain. The only response to outrageous pain is outrageous love, and outrageous lovers commit outrageous acts of love. We become the Godfield. In any attempt to actually ameliorate or to soften the utter outrage at suffering, is a violation of the divine. We actually, we suffer with the divine, right? And, and divinity suffers infinitely. So if divinity is infinity of power and infinity of intimacy, it means divinity is also infinity of pain. Yeah,
1: yeah. So
0: she suffers, right? That baby in Rwanda, she doesn't avert her eye. We look at it for a second. She's, she's living in that suffering and that infinity of pain that lives in us has to move us to become the God force and to, to create you know, that new world, that most beautiful, good, true world that we know is, is possible. And we have, so we avoid all explanations of suffering. Well, this,
1: this is a really good point right. because it's- Beautiful. As I've come to find peace with suffering, <laughs> evil, the, the other side of the scale of the duality to even explain it that that I'm okay with all the suffering right. right and all the evil, but at the same time i'm not complacent right, and I'm not uncaring right, and part of my contribution to that understanding is to step in and to be helpful to step right. in front of a bullet right right all of that to to so you got to hold right. to serve right, but I think Some people view that perspective of like, no, this is the way God designed the world. Just leave it alone. It doesn't mean that you're inactive or passive or uncaring. Like It is the playground that's been created that gives me the opportunity to help alleviate suffering. If there was no suffering there, then I wouldn't be able to do that. I wouldn't be able to access that expression of myself which is really what I'm doing here on this podcast. I mean, that's the core of it. No, gorgeous. gorgeous. I mean, on all the podcasts that I record, ultimately, whether they're about the physical or the metaphysical, it's elevating consciousness and alleviating suffering that we might spark an idea in someone that changes the trajectory of their feeling or thoughts and then behavior. So your intention on this podcast is to alleviate suffering.
0: It's very beautiful, right? And that's a very clear intention. And so what I'm just trying to tenderly do or maybe not so tenderly, right? But but fiercely, but always with quivering tenderness underneath the fierceness is we want to stay outraged about suffering, right? Pain is outrageous. You know, I have a, a friend here in Austin, John, um, who's a grocer at uh, uh, Whole Foods. So John was the board chair of our um, think tank for a bunch of years. And John called me once and John's a great guy, right? And John said, you know, Mark, I don't think you should talk about outrageous pain. Let's call it unlimited pain, right? So that's a, that's a nice word, <laughs> I like that. right? Because outrageous has the word rage in it. And so, you right. know, I laughed and I said, John and we, John and I teach each other about this over the years. No, it's got to be outrageous, right? You have to experience rage, right? The prophet experiences rage. If you look at suffering, you're not outraged. You're actually dissociated and alienated from the Godfield. And so you know, there's a, um, there's that movie some 25 years ago. I can't remember who starred it. It was called Network.
1: Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Where he goes, he goes bananas on the he propaganda goes, machine. That's right. He goes right and he, classic. He, and he, right and he says, I should watch that again because it'd be so relevant in the times in which we live now. That's
0: such a great movie, and he says, I want everyone to go out to the window and say. I'm mad. <laughs> I'm mad, and I'm just not gonna take it anymore. Yeah. And so he's accessing outrage.
1: Yeah.
0: And what metaphysics does is it actually blunts outrage, paradoxically. So I think we actually need to we need to not get okay with it at all, and at the same time realize that it doesn't take me out of the God field because the fact that I'm outraged tells me I live in a universe that's good. Is I wouldn't be outraged if the universe was neutral. So right. That's the, it's so gorgeous that the question right. of why itself is not the answer because there's no answer, but it's the response. There'd be no challenge, right? Suffering would not offer me any challenge if I lived in a world which was a tale told by an idiot full of sounds and fury, signifying nothing. Suffering's only a challenge because I know that I live in the field of the good and the true and the beautiful. Suffering violates that field. So the fact that I'm outraged by suffering— Actually relocates me in the God field in the divine field in the field of goodness, truth and beauty, and i 'm outraged, so then it demands right outrageous acts of love now, what we just did is we just rewrote two thousand years of history right in other words, what we just did is we just rejected the theodicies of the great traditions not because they were wrong, that they each have something important to say they're each true but partial, but they actually are insufficient and they're they're offensive, there's nothing obscene in them, and all of secular modernity arises in rejection of the religious explanations of suffering. So I want to get how source code this is. If we could, from the perspective of meaning, approach suffering in a different way, that's a source code evolution move. Voltaire starts you know his revolution. remember the cruelties. Hume, you know, Rousseau, you know Hobbes right? Montesquieu. I mean, the entire Kant, the entire Western tradition is about the rejection of religious explanations of suffering. And the East doesn't do any better, right? The East kind of works out the Tao and it's all very nice, right? And I love Taoism and I I live deeply inside of it. And I, you know, I love Vajrayana and and Mayana, Theravada a little bit less, right? But but it's a mistake. No, it's not just clarifying the mind. It's not just we're going to move beyond life as suffering. No, no, no. We're outraged by suffering. And it's the posture of the new human and the new humanity is we're not just homo sapien. We're, we're love in person. We're homo amor. Right? I'm homo amor. I'm, I'm an irreducibly unique expression of the love intelligence and love beauty. And when I see suffering, I'm outraged. But, but not in a way that takes me out of the God field, not in a way that turns me into you know, it turns you into Catholic the Karamasa. thing that you're
1: outraged by. That's right. It doesn't turn me into a monster. And it doesn't. That's what we see so much in our culture, especially starting around 2016. Right. I hate the people that hate. Ah, just like, Right, right. <laughs> you just see the wheels spinning, going nowhere, you know? and that, It's that, not the way up and out. It's not the way up
0: and out. and And that's so true in our culture, right? In other words, what we do in our culture is we say... We're outraged by your position because we don't realize that both of us are in the field of value. And in the field of value, value can express itself in competing perspectives, but we actually don't experience ourselves as being in the field of value. It's very subtle. When I'm not in the field of value, I'm outside the Tao. I'm outside the field of value. Then my position is not an expression of value. It's my identity.
1: Bingo. Right, yeah. and if it's my identity, yeah.
0: I'm never going to compromise on my identity. So my identity conflicts with your identity. That puts a lot of pieces together. Does that really?
1: Yeah. Well, in terms of what we see now with the influx of cultural Marxism, for lack of a better yeah. term, but it's it's as though there. Well, it's not as though people are being encouraged to self-identify in all of these micro-identifies that aren't actually inherently who they are. Right. Because right. we have no identity. Yeah. So there's a vacuum of identity. And then and then when, the way I perceive it at least, is when Beautiful. the ego goes, oh, I'm that, girl. I'm going to grab that and identify with that so deeply and so the intimately. The ego hijacks that identity. Yeah, then that becomes my perception and my identification of who and what I am. Therefore, anything that threatens that identity Gorgeous. directly and personally threatens me and puts me on the defense or gorgeous. offense against those who that is aren't that Luke. That's gorgeous. Let us play with it. That's and it's gorgeous. such Go. a it's such a mind fuck it's because such a it's, mind such a fuck. it's such a disservice. It's such a disservice to humanity. And people are blindly and innocently going along with it because the 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 people that have put these ideas into motion and injected them into culture know what they're doing. This is the conspiratorial part of me. That the, the illusion is something we're so prone to because of our tribalism and just the way that we identify with ego. That if you give us that menu and say, pick that one, and I pick that, then I, I become entrapped and enslaved unto myself without even needing an oppressor to do it. Yeah, there, there's, yeah, so because there... of the inherent division. Hey guys, I'm excited to talk to you today about a bomb new product from our friends over at Biocharged. Now I've been using their resistor ozonated oil capsules for gut health and overall detoxing for a while. But now they've added a second weapon in their arsenal of awesomeness. It's called Amptogen, kind of a mashup of Ampt and Adaptogen. Adaptogens help you bounce back from stress and recover faster, and the amped part, well, I guess that's the secret sauce, but I'm going to reveal it to you here today. Amptogen is a super blend of four potent ingredients. Number one, shilajit. It's a Himalayan resin that's got tons of trace minerals, fulvic and humic acid, and I use it on its own for concentration and to smash brain fog. Number two, resveratrol, a powerful antioxidant and neuroprotective agent that supports heart health and reduces inflammation. Number three is NMN, a powerful energy booster and precursor to NAD. And finally, number four, niacinamide to boost your vitamin B3 levels and support the aging process. So Amptogen synergizes all four of these into a super potent formula. Just two capsules a day, my friends, replenishes key minerals, amps up your mitochondrial function, and improves cellular repair. And the bonus is that because it improves recovery time and minimizes muscle cramps, Aptogen's the perfect tool to stash in your gym bag. So if you want to get charged up, here's what you do. Go over to biocharged.co and get your hands on some of this stuff. And if you use the code Luke, you'll save 15% on your order. But heads up, if you're new to using Shilajit, they recommend taking Amptogen in the morning due to the massive pickup you feel. But once you get used to it, you can safely take it whenever you need a boost. And again, get that boost at biocharged.co and the code there is Luke.
0: So let's go slow. Let's go, so there's two parts here. So one is, and they're both true, we need to look at them carefully. So one is... There is something called propaganda, which is real. Propaganda is not something that appears on some you know, fringe podcast that's made up. Propaganda is a very clear and intentional methodology. It's not just on a billboard
1: from USSR. Right. <laughs> that's right. right. Like we think is- of propaganda as like iconography or something. Right. But, it's, right. Pro- but it's a more prolific mind virus. And Pro- it's Propaganda, multifaceted. propaganda
0: is, is actually the way culture works. And it's actually quite organized and quite intentional. Right? And it is organized by the legacy institutions. And there's an enormous amount of information on that, which is very, very real. So that's, that's one. Two, so, so there, there are bad actors, but they're bad actors for one of two reasons. Either because there are some really demonic bad actors. There are real bad actors in the world. That's true. But generally, the bad actors view themselves as good actors, that They basically say, oh, we're, we're confronted by risk, different forms of existential risk. One of the first people who fit into this world was B.F. Skinner at Harvard for six decades at Harvard, right? He's the rating psychologist. We're actually about, myself and Zach Stein about to uh, come out with a book. It's probably gonna be authored by David J. Temple, right? Which is a very careful analysis of the MIT Media Lab, which is at the center of the WebPlex. And the source of the MIT Media Lab's thinking in B.F. Skinner. Oh, interesting. Which is quite shocking. And B.F. Skinner basically operates under the assumption that the only way to respond to this risk is to control the whole system. You control it through propaganda. B.F. Skinner talks about creating, being able to control rats and pigeons and you know what he calls Skinner's Boxes where invisible levels of levers of control control the rats and pigeons. And if you study the MIT Media Lab carefully, particularly the writings of one of its figures, Alex Pentland, Sandy Pentland, who's not a demon, I'd be delighted to have Sandy over for dinner, but he's operating under the assumption that spirit's not real, that value's not real, therefore we need to control the system. We, We can't let people know they're being controlled, so we have to use the levers of social media to actually right. control and to create reality as a Skinner's box. And the word that Pentland uses for Skinner's box, euphemistically, is living laboratory, right? He calls a Skinner's box, he, he, there's 23 core issues, which we won't get into now, it's its own podcast, where Pentland is directly drawing on Skinner, pretends like he doesn't know Skinner, but when you read the language carefully, it's very clear that he does. And I read through kind of all Skinner's works and pretty much all Pentland's works, because I'm crazy, right? And, and we have to do real work. We have to be grounded. And it's very, very clear that this notion that you're talking about, this this move to control and this that which the conspiratorial world doesn't actually ground itself and it just kind of makes claims, actually there's something very real there. So there is propaganda, which is real that moves to control the system. That's true. But there's something even more insidious, which is the reason we reduce human beings, the reason human beings don't actually act from their highest, the reason that we have these essentially pseudo-eros self-understandings is because we don't have a good story about who we are. In other words, what a conspiracy theory is, is a story about what's going on. Now, when you're not operating in a deeper story, what is the story of cosmos? When we don't have a universe story, because we only have a regressive fundamentalist story, we don't have a new universe story, which tells us enlightenment. What's the nature of reality? There'll be lots of uncertainty, but what is reality? I don't actually get that reality is actually a love story. That reality is not just a fact. It is a story. And it's not just an ordinary story. It's actually a love story. And it's not a Pollyannish love story. It's got filled with agony and ecstasy, but it's a love story. From Quark's you know, all the way to subatomic particles to become atoms, to atoms become molecules and molecules become macromolecules. It's actually a story of allurement, of separate parts becoming larger holes, right? Of new synergies and new emergences. Reality is actually a love story. That's actually its nature, right? If you don't get reality as a love story, so you don't get reality's eros, then you're left with no plot line.
1: When you're left with no plot line, you got to fill something in. Boom. Boom, conspiracy. And they and they're, reductive materialist and, and there is born your identify that your identity that in some cases has been handed you through propaganda on a silver platter. So you just you and just, you gobble it up like one of just, one of Skinner's rats. Exactly. So you just tied us
0: back in, which is gorgeous. So what happens? Oh, that's cool. So there's no storyline. So I'm not actually an expression of eros. I'm not an irreducible unique self. I'm not who is Luke a unique configuration of eros. But if I'm not a unique configuration of eros of the field of eros, so then I'm empty emptiness is unimaginably painful so i don't have eros i need pseudo eros so pseudo eros is a contrived identity
1: oh man i'm left we (laughs) i'm right and that's polarization (laughs) we see we see so much of that right now too right isn't that amazing yeah and the the momentum behind it is just staggering like it's staggering if you went in a time machine and just went back three or four years And popped out today, you'd be like, what is happening? And let's
0: just see how critical is what we're saying, brother, because we're trying to actually get beneath all the punditry. There hasn't been one intelligent article in the New York Times, on CNN or Fox News, not one, right? Or or in Germany or in France, et cetera, which actually explains well polarization. What we've just done is we've actually unpacked what polarization is. Polarization comes from, the experience that I'm not in the field of value. I'm not in the field of eros. That my story is not part of a larger story. I can't live without a story, without a plot line, without a a self-understanding, without the eros of self-understanding. Pseudo-eros comes in, I create a contrived identity. If I have a contrived identity, I'm Republican, I'm Democrat, I'm left, I'm right. I die for my identity because Because I don't have anything else. That's polarization. (laughs) Right, But if we both step into the field of value, meaning, I'll just give you an example. So let's say Luke and Mark are both in the field of value. We're in the field of value and we're arguing over abortion, which is obviously a a critically important issue. Now, you might tend towards pro-life, or I might, or or you might tend towards pro-choice, but actually we can hear each other because you're not saying, you see, if you're out of the field of value, say I'm pro-life, meaning life's my only value. I ignore choice as a value. And, and I'm saying I am that. And I am Ignoring that. Ignoring so, what I really am. That's right. So, I'm not, so instead, of being, instead of us both being in the field of value, when we realize if we're in the field of value, we realize, oh, life's a value and choice is a value. So both life and choice are expressions of a deeper field of value so we're both in the field of value the field of value is beneath life and choice it's the field of value then that field of value expresses itself uniquely as life and choice two individual values but we're both in the field of value so when you say life matters i say oh of course it's a very important value when i say choice matters you say of course choice is a very important value so now life and choice need to synergize, and we need to create a more whole new set of values that can
1: actually embrace both positions. But if we're both outside the field of value, so then— And and, and out of that is born compromise and negotiation.
0: And, and not compromise and right? negotiation, which is
1: a sellout. Okay. Right and not,
0: Cooperation?
1: Not, not, like what it's out of that? Okay. Synergy. Okay. Something more I'm just whole. thinking about legislation and yeah, no, 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 you're how right, things you're right. actually manifest that, legi- that.
0: No, no, no. Absolutely. But that legislation's not because we're giving up. Well, I can't give up any of my value life because I'm, I'm, I'm betraying God. No, I recognize that your value is also an expression of the God field. Choice. So now we synergize and we create a whole greater than the sum of the parts. So we've got choice, We've got life. They're both in the field of value. So then those two values have to fructify each other and they've got to generate a new emergent. That's how evolution works. Evolution works when there's an intimacy between parts, in this case, values. They're not dissociated. They come together and something new emerges. Let me try and say just one, we have another minute on this? Yeah. This is crazy important. It's it's, super cool. I love it. And this is where all goes wrong in culture. So remember we talked earlier, we talked about the levels of self. We said there's separate self completely separate, puzzle piece by itself, no puzzle. Then we said there's true self, I'm, I'm one with the field. Then we said there's unique self, I'm unique expression of the field, okay? So let's look at it this way. One way of understanding value is, right, as separate self. So there's life, there's choice, there's separate self, they're not in the field of value. Separate selves clash with each other. They fight, they try and kill each other. That's what Hobbes writes, right? There's a, there's a state of war. But if I actually move into, oh, I'm now in the field of value, I realize, oh, life and choice, those are both expressions of the field of value. In fact, those are unique self. Those are unique expressions. They're not separate self. They're unique expressions of the field of value. Oh, those unique expressions of the field of value, they come together and then they evolve something new. They become a new evolutionary unique self that evolves the whole field. We're living in a different world now. We just described a different world. In other words, polarization comes from the inability to realize that it's not a contradiction, it's a paradox in which both sides are actually holding value. It's a shocking realization. What we do is we glom onto value, we hijack value for identity. That's the source of all polarization. And here's the weird thing, last sentence. Both the fundamentalist Christian community on this issue and the liberal progressive community, they're both out of the field of value. Because you would think, oh, the fundamentalist Christians, they're, they're in the field of value, and those postmodern liberal progressives, they're out of the field of value, it's not true. The fundamentalist Christians are not in the field of value. They're saying, no, no, there is no field of value, there's only our position. The Muslims are wrong, the Jews are wrong, the progressive Christians are wrong, that, that's not the field of value. That's actually, I'm not in the field of value, there's just one unique configuration and one value, that's the only truth means they've stepped out of the field of value. They can't hear the resonances of value. And of course, the progressive liberal position is generally postmodern. There is no field of value. So actually, both (laughs) postmodern progressives and regressive fundamentalist Christians have both stepped out of the field of value. So they can't hear each other. That's true on every issue. And here's the crazy thing. Remember Dick Nixon? You consider running for president?
1: Right. right, <laughs> right? But isn't that beautiful? Like he's got it. This isn't is it, it. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Imagine though. Right. Uh, you know, and I'm not, I'm not blowing smoke here. I mean, it's beautiful the way you're able to break this down. But imagine if you heard a legitimate politician speaking about our culture in this way, right? And we used to, right? Here's what we Dick used Nixon, to. Dick Nixon? Well, here, here's talk. the
0: interesting thing. So Dick Nixon, John Kennedy. We all know that they, they had a big presidential contestation in 1960. If we followed it carefully, we know that Joe Kennedy probably stole the election. That's a separate, there's lots of literature on that. Let's not go down that road. You know, and that's the notion that, you know, that's a whole other conversation. But actually, Dick Nixon and Jack Kennedy were friends. They became friends in 1947 on a train ride where they shared a bunk, you know, going to Washington. And they remained friends all through the 50s. And and then they had this quite bitter, you know, contestation. They remained friends afterwards. They were in touch afterwards, right? Because they had this deep sense that they were in a shared field of value. It was before, kind of post-modernity, which is really modernity on steroids, essentially deconstructed the field of value. Right, and if I can, you know, go like just deep for ten seconds for people, right? So modernity borrowed social capital from pre-modernity. And the social capital it borrowed was the field of value. Modernity said, we're not trying sure to work this out, but let's just assume there's a field of value. So they borrowed social capital from pre-modernity, the traditional world. It just, the loan just sat there. Along came postmodernity modernity and called in the loan. It said, fuck you guys. There is no field of value. You guys made it up. You just borrowed it. It's not true. That's what postmodernity did. It called in the loan. It said, there is no field of value. That's. I mean, if you get an award, you're going to say five hundred years in three sentences. That's essentially what happened. <laughs> I just had a vision of
1: an animation of this. Right. Right. That's this great. It'd be great to see the characters play this out. I mean, isn't describe, that great? Yeah. I and mean, you
0: can like, oh, so yeah. Jack Kennedy and Dick Nixon are still in the field of modernity, so they haven't worked it out in their minds exactly how it works. And Jack Kennedy's not really a Catholic, but he sort of is and sort of's not. And and Dick Nixon is kind of a you know, Lutheran, Protestant, and, and Presbyterian sort of is, but, but they both assume, they haven't worked this out, and that's, we're in a field of value. And so basically, they look at each other, and they just assume that which unites us is so much greater than that which divides us. Right? And Nixon wrote such a beautiful note to Jackie when John was killed. Right? And they, it just like you just, you felt, and, and they liked each other. Can you imagine today? Right? Can you imagine today two figures that contested so deeply in the public sphere, being good friends. And it's we've lost the sense that we're in a shared field of value, which is the source of polarization. And polarization is one of the three fundamental causes for existential risk. So what we're talking about here is not a meta-theoretical, you know, academic intellectual tease conversation, right? <laughs> this, is, this is everything. This is right. everything. If we don't understand the, the dynamics that creates polarization, we're fucked,
1: and We're there there can be no civility without a field of value because the field of value yes! is the intimacy yes that draws us together as different oh my God. but part of the same whole you're my new best friend right right right, right. yes and, and
0: others at the core of everything is a global intimacy disorder yeah I love right, there, right? that's exactly right there's a global anim- and and what causes intimacy right so Allison and right Luke. Right. And so we're not gonna do a since I know nothing about your marriage, right? So we're not gonna do a kind <laughs> It's of, a beautiful you know, marriage. Marriage conversation. It's beautiful, <laughs> it's probably understandable but, but in other words, so why is it work? Why is it a beautiful marriage? Right? What's you know, and of course you've got your ups and downs, which everyone has in the world except for of course me and Christina, who are perfect, right? But in other words, but so why right, why is it a beautiful marriage? Because you have there's some shared field of value. Right? In other words, and all of the other issues that we try and work on in a marriage, which we all try and work on, and everyone tries to work on their relationship, and we all should, but we can, those only work if we're in a shared field of value. So if there's no field of value between Mark and Christina, between, you know, Allison and Luke, then we can't have intimacy. Intimacy requires a shared field of value. So an intimacy disorder at its core is actually a breakdown in the shared field of value right? And everything else is an expression of that. That's a big deal. So a global intimacy disorder, which is, I think, the root cause of existential risk, right? Existential risk is based on win-lose dynamics and rivalrous conflict, number one, that generates fragile systems, number two. That's a longer conversation. Those are the generator functions. But underneath those generator functions is a root cause. The root cause is a global intimacy disorder. But the global intimacy disorder is rooted in a collapse of a shared story of value. So therefore, the way to respond to existential risk is to reconstruct a shared story of value. Boom. Boom. It's like, boom, right? That's what we're doing here. That's what we're doing here.
1: Let's face it, you guys. We're all pretty damn stressed out these days. What a crazy three years it's been. Well, what if there was an easy way to build resilience to stress? I use this device called the Apollo, so I spend less time in fight or flight mode and get more time to rest and digest. The Apollo wearable was developed by neuroscientists and physicians and utilizes a new touch therapy experience for better sleep, more energy, relaxation, and focus. The way it works is this. Through soothing gentle waves of vibration, the Apollo wearable helps your body relax and reduces the feeling of stress putting you into a state that allows you to have more control over how you want to feel. I use the Apollo Neuro app to effortlessly transition through my day and night using the modes that help me relax, fall asleep, focus, recover, and stay calm and present. I often use this thing during podcast recordings. As a matter of fact, I put it on the social mode and it kind of gives me a feeling of having a quarter drink. the science behind this technology and the results are the real deal. Across seven completed clinical trials with 14 ongoing and real world studies, Apollo wearable users experience, check this out, 40% less stress and feelings of anxiety on average, 19% more time in deep sleep on average, an 11% increase in HRV on average, and up to 25% more focus and concentration. So that's pretty impressive. And I love when tech companies come out with stuff like this and they actually do studies to prove to me that it works beyond my own imagination. To score yourself an Apollo right now, go to com and use the code LUKESTORY15 to save 15%. Again, that's com, and the code is LUKESTORY15. So if we've got Let's just simplify it. We've got two parties. And I think the pro-life and pro-choice positionality was a really a good framing because there's so much polarity there. So say we've got both sides of that or any issue and there's a circle in the room of value and, and both of us are standing outside of that circle. And the solution to... uh Synergy is for us to at least begin by getting back in that circle of shared value. Step back into the okay, right? So, how is this possible when you have such vast numbers of people that are living with unhealed trauma and addictions, for example, uh, myself included, in earlier part of life where. I was reduced to my base nature, to my animal nature, to such a degree that the only field of value in my capacity and available to me is how do I survive the next five minutes? Right. Right? Which is what addiction's about at yeah, its core. Yeah. Right. And and then you know, having had the grace uh, and good fortune to overcome that, then, you know, the world starts broadening a bit and my perspective starts to open because, wow, I have to find meaning. I have to find value or I'm going to, again, be reduced to my base nature and all of the inherent suffering that comes with that. So as we sit here, we're two men that are, you know, the refrigerator's full. We're we're not in fight or flight suffering. We've (laughs) We've worked on ourselves. We continue to work on ourselves. We're awakening. So you and I could have a conversation like this where we're agreeing in a shared field of value and we can work toward a solution and synergy and cooperation. But how do we invite someone in who's still in in a lower state of consciousness and caught in that suffering? So, no, that's beautiful. It's such a beautiful inquiry. Thank you, right?
0: In other words, we have to be able to heal the field of culture itself. In other words, what's broken is the field of value in culture. So there's a kind of death of the father, right And the father is the call of value. We love the mother, and I have written, you know volumes on the mother, you know, many volumes, you know, you know, a decade of my life writing about she the field of of the mother. The mother is unimaginably important. And that's a, a whole conversation. But there's a mother and a father. And the mother is the intrinsic value of everything at all times. But the mother doesn't always make a demand. When I say the mother, I don't mean the gendered mother. I mean the mother. The archetype, the mother, the quality of mother. And that, the father, though, the father says, there's something to do here. There's a demand. Now, the father got hijacked by the great religions, right? the father, just like the mother did. The mother got hijacked by some of the early traditions, the, the great mother traditions, which were very beautiful and also bloodthirsty and horrific. You know, they were very complex religions. The father religions also had great beauty and were also bloodthirsty and horrific in their own ways, right? The Western traditions you've got to you liberate the spark of the mother traditions and liberate the spark of the father traditions. each one has a spark of the sacred, each one is a broken vessel, but in that broken vessel there's a spark of the sacred, and we need to actually create a new world religion as a context for our diversity right? a new possibility and in that new space, we need to actually reinvoke the blessing of the father and, and the blessing of the mother that come together and actually invoke this field of value that calls us to something and so Let me give you an example. A thousand years ago, ask a seven-year-old about democracy or an 85-year-old wise one, and they'll look at you like, democracy, what? Human beings are going to choose their own government? It's just an utterly insane idea. Now, ask any seven-year-old, at least in the Western world, about democracy, and they'll say, oh, of course. So that idea is now stepped into consciousness. So there's a field of value in which democracy is an expression of that field of value, and it's accessible to seven-year-olds. Interesting, right? So what we did is we deconstructed the field of value. So when we deconstruct the field of value, and I'm only a separate self, that's all I am, means I come into this world at birth, ages, you know, zero days till two years, right? I get traumatized. I'm wounded. I'm hurt. And my entire existence is I'm a prisoner of childhood, you know, Melanie Klein. I'm traumatized and devastated, right? Because of the early lack of attunements in my life and whatever they happen to be. And that's a very, attachment theory is very real. And attachment theory is an enormous evolution of consciousness, an enormous contribution, but it's also fundamentally flawed because it assumes reductive materialist assumptions, right? And what does it assume? It assumes that, oh, everything happens between the moment you're born or prenatal, nine months before, and, you know, your first several years. means means you come into this world and there's no prior existence. There's no larger field of value. There's no continuity of consciousness. So therefore, if there's nothing else but this, well, then everything must have been formed then. If you were in some sense deformed in the time you're supposed to be formed, you're traumatized. How can you ever move beyond it? That's our assumption. That's a tragic assumption. What's actually more true is I'm born out of a field of value into a field of value. I'm a unique configuration of value. I'm born into a particular life that forms me in a particular way, which is part of the invitation and destiny of my life. But I'm called by something larger. I'm not just formed by the traumas of yesterday within my lifetime. I'm actually intended by cosmos. I was born in a particular time that I didn't choose in a particular place that I didn't choose with a particular set of proclivities That I didn't choose at a particular time in history, I didn't choose. Why do I think I'm so in charge of this? (laughs) Right? In other words, and I'm needed by cosmos, and my particular set of circumstances are the fate that I need to turn into destiny. That's much more interesting. So it's not just I'm controlled by yesterday's past. I'm actually called by value itself. I live in a field of value. I live in the eternity of value in the present, and I'm called by value into the future. So we have to do is we have to reline the field. We can't do it through individual trauma work, although that needs to be done. Trauma work is enormously important. We all need to do that is, work. Is,
1: is Pardon interruption, though. Is not one way in which the field is influenced, though, by my healing of my trauma and then producing offspring and being a loving, kind, attentive father? The healing of my trauma, like the generational the aspect? The healing of, of my generational trauma,
0: if I intend it as such, If I do it only in my own local world, then it has some effect. But if I intend my healing of trauma for the evolution of consciousness, then I'm being an evolutionary by that act. And as I transform transform trauma from separate self-psychological work into evolutionary work, I'm an erotic mystic reweaving the field of eros, well, then my trauma work's completely different. And then my trauma work has much more capacity to be successful. Because trauma work today is about organizing the memory of the past. There's not just the memory of the past. There's the depth of the present and there's the memory of the future. So, trauma work has basically dissociated from the, the eternal depth of enlightenment in the present and from the call of the memory of the future. So, if I could kind of frame it for a second, we live in a psychological self. And the psychological self says that one quality of time dominates the past. Now, that's not wrong. Breuer's sitting there with Freud in Vienna, and you've got all these hysterical women right, that are being labeled as hysterical, you know, somehow almost evil women. And Breuer says, fuck you, culture. Actually, these women were abused, right? And we actually need to hold them with compassion. And they're actually victims. And we actually need to go into their past, find the key to unlock the gate to their beauty and their depth. That's gorgeous, right? So psychology locates this, oh, there's this great wisdom in the past. We need to go back and, and, and we weren't aware of that before. That was one of the greatest evolutions of consciousness in Western civilization is that realization of psychology that that we can actually reconfigure past patterns by re-entering the past and reliving the past. stunning.
1: Wow. That's stunning. That's
0: the psychological self. But then you have a second self, which is equally important, which I call the mystical self. And the mystical self is the self of the great lineages that didn't understand the past, but they did get the depth of the present the eternity that resides in the moment. So notice this, the psychological self ignores the mystical self. Psychology generally ignores the depth of the transpersonal. The mystical self ignores the psychological self. So the mystical self says, go into the infinite depth of the present and there you'll find wholeness. That's exactly half true, just like the psychological self is exactly half true. They both ignore and cancel each other, but you can't just get whole, you know, many, I know a number of people, very, very, very good people who are very close to Muktananda. It
1: was a very, you know, oh, wow. important. Muktananda, that's so interesting. You mentioned yeah, that an particular important, guy. Yeah, and
0: a very important American teacher. But the tragedy of the world around Muktananda, not just him, but the entire world of, you know, Eastern spiritual teaching that came to the United States is it didn't get the importance of the psychological. And it thought that the, the mystical self would heal everything. Just like the psychological self ignored the depth of enlightenment. So there's a psychological self, which says the primary experience of reality is the past, the key deliberations, reliving the past. Mystical self ignores the psychological self, no, no. The eternity of the now. Those are both important, true, but partial. We need to integrate them both, but we need to bring a third self online. And I call the third self the evolutionary self. The evolutionary self is called by the memory of the future. The evolutionary self understands that hope is a memory of the future and transformation is a memory of the future. That's what transformation is. Transformation is, it's 25, 20 years ago. I moved from 25 to 20, just 20 years ago. Let's say 25, right? Luke is in a hard moment, but he has a memory of the future. He sees this other Luke, right? He's called. Like a vision of potentiality. He, right, it's a vision of possibility, but it's not just a psychological vision. You're called. You actually feel the call. That future Luke is calling me. There's a future self that's calling me. And and I act. that's the unique self of Luke that needs to be recovered. So I don't just recover and reorganize the past, I actually recover the vision of my future. And I can't actually get out of the mud, you know, the crude metaphor. If I'm just pushing from behind, I need to be pulled by the future. So in our model of self, if we can kind of augment, we started with separate self, true self, Unique self, evolutionary, unique self. That was our four puzzle piece model. That's model one in this new story of value we call cosmo humanism. Model two, and they work together, is there's a psychological self, and there's a mystical self, and there's an evolutionary or a future self. And we need all three. One emphasizes the past. The other emphasizes the present. The third emphasizes the future. All three of them dismiss the other one. Tragic. We need to integrate them in I'm called by the future. I live in the depth of the present and I recover and reorganize the memory of the past. So we need to do that for culture. That's what we need. That's what a new story of value does, right? It, it actually allows people to live in that story of value. And I, I have a 12 year old son who's a, a gorgeous young man, you know, Zion. And, and he came to me and said, I, I want to I watch TikTok. And I said, not even a conversation, no. <laughs> <Right>? It's not, <laughs> not, actually, let's negotiate, no, no negotiation. Right, I said. He said, "Why?" I said, "Because TikTok is videos that go every forty-five seconds, which your mind actually turns off. They actually bypass the process of transmission of values. You get completely addicted to them, and your mind is going to be fried by fifteen. So you can be as mad at me as you want. I love you madly. No, right? And that's what we're doing, right? You know, is we're actually we're taking people out of the field of value. TikTok, Facebook." Right, the entire social media complex is driven by profit, by a series of private companies. Mean, it's actually shocking. Private companies that are now controlling our shared space. And Metcalfe's Law, right, we have no choice but to be in that shared space because if we're not in that shared space, we're cut off from social discourse. Right, so I've got to be somehow connected. And in that shared space, they're actually optimizing for engagement, which means addiction meaning most time on an app, which directly generates more what's called digital exhaust, right? More breadcrumbs, which are then fed into algorithmic structures, which then create predictive analysis about what my future behavior will be. And then that predictive analysis is sold in Chinese auctions happening billions of times a day to misaligned third parties or misaligned with my highest value. That's a shocking reality and no one's ever agreed to it. And the reason it started was because, you know, in 2001, Google was having a hard time and Sergey and Larry were living in, you know, Silicon Valley. And as Sergey said, he said, I don't want to be a schmuck and just have a $40 million company. And so they then reconfigured their business model against their own internal sense of values, right? which was that a search engine couldn't do advertisement. And they figured out how to actually do advertising much more effectively through this reality mining, turning turning digital exhaust into predictive analysis, 2002, 2003, Eric Schmidt, you know, kind of works on that very intensely. And the reason they get away with it is because, in their own internal senses, it wasn't against the law. It wasn't against the law because law had become dissociated from value. And law didn't even know how to address it because it was an emergent reality that law couldn't address. So, so basically, Sergey and Larry are basically postmodernists dissociated from the field of value at their very core. So is Mark. Mark went to Exeter, Zuckerberg, right? You know, Exeter is a place I've taught, given public assemblies, met with hundreds of students. Exeter is utterly dissociated from the field of value. I spoke to one teacher at Exeter who said to me, when I came to Exeter, right, the good, the true, and the beautiful were a given for everybody. 40 years later, I, I leave Exeter. Neither the students nor the faculty right, actually subscribes to any field of value, to any good, true, and beautiful. That's what educated Mark Zuckerberg. So he goes to Facebook and he basically says, he's trying to figure out, you know, okay, how do we actually organize and control reality and actually organize love based on algorithmic structures that are measurable because for him, there's no field of value. And these companies, right, and of course, Beto, right, in China, it's all over the world. They've taken over the social space, They've actually created our social space that are unregulated by government because government actually doesn't have any data engineers, data scientists, who know how to regulate it to understand the algorithms. So so there's no binding force, right? It's a shocking reality. So we get upgraded algorithms, very narrow vectors of profit for, you know, 15 or 20 people. It's It's actually shocking, right? That are actually controlling Right, the space of consciousness world over based on appealing to the lowest common denominator, which can affect control, and they're actually rooted in Skinner. And Skinner writes a novel in 1948 called Walden II, which is far more frightening than the novel the year before by Orwell, 1984. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but right? not meant to be. But not meant to be. And Walden II is a description of a city driven and organized by what are called controllers... Right, who organize the space and operate the levers of control without anyone in the city knowing it's possible. And then Skinner writes afterwards, he says, Walden 2 is the only way to respond to existential risk. He doesn't use those words, but it's what he implies. He says, the problem is I don't have the instruments and the methods to accomplish it. Along comes data science and provides the Skinnerian reductive materialist worldview with instruments and methods. MIT Media Lab steps in front and center doing data science. And We have this new reality driven by algorithmic structures. Listen to this, that no one voted on. So you think you live in a democracy. Well, do we? No one voted on any of these things. Who who voted? These are the most important issues at stake.
1: Not only did people not vote. No one's um, even aware they were happening. They don't know they exist. They
0: don't even know they exist, (laughs) right? Right, no vote. And, And now as we're moving into kind of chat GPT-4, Right, right, these new right, AI structures in which the entire AI race right, is driven by a very small group of people. And You've got about 20% of leading AI people today who think that AI right, is existential risk, meaning it can actually cause for, it's a different podcast, right, for a number of reasons, it can cause a values lock-in because once, a, once we get to AGI, General Artificial Intelligence, then within a year or two, whoever gets to AGI first essentially dominates all militaries and all economies. So let's say that happens to China. You got a China values lock in for a thousand years. I mean, it's a, it's a very serious issue. So why are we doing it? Why do we keep developing towards artificial general intelligence? If there's a 20% risk, that's going to cause existential risk, right, either an extinction, because we don't know what it's going to do. We don't know... It's a black box. It's what Nick Bostrom calls in a 2019 essay called The Vulnerability Hypothesis. It's a black box where you don't know what it's going to produce. Why don't we stop? Because we're out of the field of value. And so the only thing in the field is a pseudo-era story called Win-Lose Metrics. So therefore we create this world of multipolar traps and races to the bottom, strategies of the commons, where essentially everyone keeps developing it because no one knows how to get off the wheel because there's this addiction. And this is literally happening today. As ChatGPT4, and all of a sudden people are saying, oh, this is a little scary, but the development goes on. There's been in the last four months an explosion of reinvestment by a series of companies in new AI technologies because one company was successful with ChatGPT3, which that blew Google out of the water. Google was like shocked. They then took off the shelves all of their development, ignored all the ethical concerns, even though they pretended to pay attention to them. And well, we literally have a an AI arms race because we're out of the field of value. So in other words, in order, we can't just deal with individual trauma, right? We have to deal with the collective trauma of being outside the field of value. And then, you know, Fromm wrote a book, Eric Fromm, who's gorgeous, called The Sane Society. And his basic point was, you think you're insane and you think it's your personal insanity. Actually, it might be a collective pathology and there's no great accomplishment right to be well adjusted in an insane society <laughs> right <laughs> that's right if you're well adjusted in an insane society there's something wrong with you we should actually be outraged we should be we should experience the maladjustment and it's only that emergence of will political will and political will only emerges from a field of value it's only if you feel values being violated that you're outraged so when people look at the webplex today why aren't they they outraged because basically people aren't in the field of value. So they can't figure out, well, what's been violated? It's not against the law. What's been violated is human personhood. I mean, Skinner, Skinner and Pentland at the MIT Media Lab take it as a given there's no human choice. Choice is an illusion. That's shocking. Atlantic Magazine, 2016 cover article, choice is an illusion. Personhood's an illusion, right? But if I don't believe that personhood's an intrinsic value of cosmos, if I don't believe choice is an intrinsic value of cosmos, if I don't believe transformation is an intrinsic value of cosmos, well, it's not against the law. Nothing has been violated. There's no outrage. That's why outrage is so important, right? because we don't even know what's been violated. And that's what that movie network was. He was saying is like, this is wrong. <laughs> right? Like, I'm get mad. I'm not going to take this anymore. So we need to invoke outrage. We can only invoke outrage when we're in the field of value. Otherwise, we get lost in the rabbit hole of our personal traumas. And it's why I responded to your question in this particular way, right? Personal trauma is critical, but can also become a form of pseudo eros. It can also become the rabbit hole I go down to actually ignore, right? The larger collapse of the field of valid, to ignore existential risk, to ignore the larger vectors of the story, because I'm not even sure what to do with it. So I just kind of look away. Robert K. Lifton wrote a book called Facing Apocalypse, where he talks about the deep desire to look away. We have got to look towards. And so that's a whole, that's a big conversation. There's, there's something but like that.
1: really uh, interesting that came to mind when you're describing the uh, capacity we have to work on the past and to focus on the past, and that that's what shaped us, our traumas, right? And and digging in the past and the whole Freudian piece, right? And then you have the Mukdenanda presence, right? the eternal now and then right. you have the mystical self. you have the vi- mystical self then you have the vision of the future self and it was interesting as you described yeah. that because at different times i think i've touched elements of that right. along my own personal evolution right. however and you know i always give this disclaimer i'm not saying this is the way for everyone but as you're saying that my awareness is screaming psychedelics cuz those experiences <laughs> are where, for me personally, my story, not for everyone, do your research, do your own thing, people. But that is where all of the pieces of psychology, mysticism, all of, all right. of those constructs, all the versions of me, almost like a Russian doll. That's yes, a vision beautiful. that's come to me is like doing inner child a work, for example. I can sit with the therapist and I go, oh shit, man, when I was five, this happened. Well, now I see why I'm this way. And I might get some incremental change and evolution out of that. That's valuable but i still saw well that was luke the little boy who doesn't right. exist anymore right that was he's gone now i'm this different person as an adult and through Beautiful. these processes i've seen the russian doll it's like no every version of myself from We're my just, inception until this moment is actually still me and i'm still here it's an integration process great. and in some of those experiences i mean you to call it like a deep reverent presence, there's no words that can even describe right. the level of presence in the me now and the integration of the past traumatized me and the psychological sort of model that was necessary to heal those parts of myself within me in the now. But more than anything is like, okay, so I'm that and I'm this, right. but what if I was that future right. self, right? right? The evolutionary Calling mystical me. self is going like, oh, we're pulling you toward what you could be. Gorgeous. But we have to pull you with what you were and what you are. That's right. Because it's all present in the eternal now. Right. No, that's right. gorgeous, right? And got- I'm sure many people, you know, I think you've said gorgeous. uh different paths to the same mountain or something. One mountain, many paths. One right. mountain, many paths. I love that. I've never heard it said like that. But this has just been my path. It's like gorgeous. You know, twenty-five years of working in all the realms. Yeah. And then uh the past few years of of integrating that with the assistance of ceremony and whatnot, right? And and, and those, that's I mean, so, Luke, those have been the exponential movers for me where it's like, whoa, go spend a weekend somewhere, kind of unpack all this, put it together without the uh, without being encumbered by the mind and the ego and all the things and being in more of a state of pure consciousness and having, uh, having the veil of uh, my senses right. sort of out of the way and everything right. is... More um, clear, clear, you know, clarity on putting that all together in a comprehensive way and emerging as a different person. Beautiful. Not just feeling different, but actually, my whole life actually becoming different. A common request from lifestylist listeners is a breakdown of my top five non negotiable supplements. After a couple decades of research, I'd have to say that vitamin K2 easily makes that list. Nearly every American adult has insufficient levels of vitamin K2. It's simply not available in the modern Western diet. Why does this matter? Well, a K2 deficiency can cause major issues including coronary artery disease, heart disease, bone spurs, kidney stones and liver stones, plaque in your heart vessels, and even major cardiac events. In 1990, the Rotterdam study looked at people from eastern Japan who consumed high amounts of K2. More than 8,400 participants were given 50 micrograms of natural K2 on a daily basis for more than 10 years, and the results were insane. Participants of the study showed a 50% decrease in cardiovascular events and mortality, a 25% decrease in all-cause mortality, a 25% reduced risk for dying from any disease across the board, and finally, a 25% increased rate of living longer and healthier. It's crazy what they found in this study. So now you can see why I'm into taking K2 every single day of my life. And my favorite source is from a company called Just Thrive. Their vitamin K2 is the only product on the market with 320 micrograms of pharmaceutical-grade K2-7, which is the optimal daily amount. This is the K2 I use and trust because it's microbiologist-formulated and clinically tested and supports healthy heart, circulation, brain, bones, and nerves, and even encourages healthy blood sugar levels. So for exceptional gut and immune health in the new year and beyond, there's nothing like Just Thrive. And right now, you can get 15% off everything Just Thrive carries when you go to justthrivehealth.com and use the code LUKE15 at checkout. That's justthrivehealth.com and the code is Luke 15. Relationships, work, everything, mission, purpose, my value, my field of value, expanding and growing and becoming more inclusive of totality. Gorgeous. And
0: so, psychedelics.
1: Yeah, so psychedelics. Psych- that's great. It's great. So. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is like, when I, heard, when I heard you you know, talk about those sort of three different aspects of us, I'm like, and the answer is that. <laughs> you know, it's like... So, so psychedelic... Can they take us there? Psychedelic... Collectively.
0: Psychedelics actually... Let us say three things. One, psychedelics are enormously important. They're enormously important in addressing trauma, both personally and collectively. So my core understanding which is central to this new story of value of cosmerotic humanism, is that part of enacting a world religion is the ritual of psychedelics. Psychedelics is a critical ritual that actually gives people direct access to real states of consciousness. And like anything can be misused, right? Anything can be misused. But but fundamentally, psychedelics are a, a monumental breakthrough to open up democratizations of enlightenment, they don't replace practice, but they open up what the interior sciences call itaruta de la ela, arousal from above. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> nice. so arousal from yeah. above is you fall in love. Got that right. <laughs> Wait, got that right. Right. Got that yeah. one right. Right. Yeah. Right. So you fall in love. Arousal from above. Then it's, you know, it's a year later and, and there's conflict and there's separation and there's power struggle and there's, you know, reindividuating right? And that's fine. But you need the original falling in love to actually feel the possibility and then that becomes your North Star. If you skip falling in love, and there's an enormous literature in the, the love relationship literature that says, oh, love begins when you fall out of love and you start to do the work. Bullshit. Right? Love begins when you fall in love. Right? And that, that's a structure of cosmos, which is arousal from above. You then lose access to that arousal from above. That station one of love is falling in love. Station two of love is you lose access to that. In the interior sciences, we call station one hachna'a submission, right? You fall in love. Where do we want to live? Alaska, sure, let's move to Alaska, right? So it's complete arousal from above. Second stage, separation, individuation, the power struggle. And then third stage, you actually follow the North Star of that original arousal from above, and you fall in love again at a higher level of consciousness. So psychedelics... Are the experience of falling in love with reality, and reality falling in love with you. It's a gift. It's an arousal from above. Now you don't then retain it. You don't live in psychedelics, but you now have a vision of what's possible. Now you need to ground that vision. And here I want to say a key sense. And you know, I did a um, a journey with a, a dear friend that's joined me in Holy of Holies. Actually, a mutual friend of ours, Aubrey. He joined me in what I call Holy of Holies, which is a place of study, a kind of transmission of the Dharma. And so we study a lot these days. And so we're doing what I call the Dharma. Dharma is the new story of value. And then we actually sat and did a journey together, you know, a journey into medicine and ceremony. And as I came out of the journey, I turned to Aubrey and I said, the medicine needs the Dharma and the Dharma needs the medicine, right? In other words, medicine without Dharma is actually problematic. Just like state experiences can be interpreted in all sorts of ways. And it's, Nazis had very intense state experiences and used psychedelics and used occult, right? So and occult can be misused all the time and psychedelics can be misused. And there was a reason why the conventional world was wary of psychedelics. It wasn't just crazy people. There's reason to be wary. So psychedelics or medicine without dharma, problematic. But dharma needs ritual, needs practice, needs medicine. And so I think one of the essential structures of a new world religion, again, not a dominating world religion, a world religion as a context for our diversity, as the context for a thousand religions, right? But this you kind know, of, or better way to say it is world religion or a, a shared field of value, right? a universal grammar of value as a context for our diversity to address the metacrisis has to be informed by medicine and dharma. And dharma informs medicine and medicine informs dharma. And without having direct access to waking up. And waking up basically means psychedelics, means medicine, means practice. There's different roads. But if I can't actually wake up and have a direct experience that I am the cosmoerotic universe in person, and it's breathing and living me, and the goodness of reality becomes self-evident, and I know that every place I fall, I fall into the hands of she, and I know that beauty is real, and truth is real, and goodness is real, and it all matters, right? And that it's all living and alive, and it all wants me to transform and wants my success and that all of reality is actually cheering me on, that I was intended by reality. I'm not an accident. I'm desired by reality. I'm chosen by reality. I'm recognized by reality. I'm, I'm needed by reality. If I can't have that a direct first-person experience of that, the whole thing fails. I mean, all of these are just words until we live them in the stories of our lives. So beautiful psychedelics is an absolute necessity. And of course, in the intimate universe, nothing Nothing happens without deep synchronicity. So the fact that psychedelics have been developed chemically in the last 40, 50 years, and they're coming online together with plants, so you've got both a kind of a pharmacological but quite sophisticated, right? Let's not dismiss MDMA, right? You have a quite sophisticated, right? Let's not dismiss LSD. These are sophisticated, subtle, often misused. But when used properly, You know, at the Masters and Johnson Clinic, um, one of the people on our board, a wonderful person, was the, they were the clinical directors there. They used MDMA, right? Or we're using, MDMA is wildly important. So if we can actually bring the plant online and the sacred technologies of pharmacology and have those become part of a deep world spirituality ritual, which itself is mediated through dharma, So meaning, just an example, it doesn't get hijacked by like, okay, I have a a psychedelic experience, and I'm completely egocentric, so I'm God. (laughs) Dangerous. (laughs) I, I have a psychedelic experience, I'm totally ethnocentric, my people are the chosen people and no one else is. So in other words, psychedelics is always mediated through a prism of interpretation. So the Dharma needs the medicine, the medicine needs Dharma, and that becomes the cornerstone of healing the trauma of culture itself. How insanely exciting and how insanely promising. And so it's not just we're before dystopia. You know, as we kind of come to the end of our conversation, we're talking about existential risk and we're talking about this potential dystopia, but we're also invoking here together, which is so exciting is we're not just poised before dystopia. That's a mistake. We're actually in a time between worlds. We're in a time between stories. We're poised between utopia and dystopia. Yeah. We can create the most beautiful world imaginable. And we need the technologies to do it and we can do it. And we're not waiting for the Savior to do it, right? We are the Savior. She lives in us. And obviously your podcast and your intention is is
1: part of the fabric of that field. So what a crazy delight. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's it's such an exciting and interesting time to be alive. Oh my God. You know, like if you, or for me, if I let go of my uh, attachment to how I think things should be and understand that the way things are is largely based on my perception of what they are and what I think and feel about it. But if I can be as objective as I can possibly be, you see the dystopia just growing like this fucking monster you know with all of the things you talked about these these uh, elements of control the empire the state right the ai and you just think oh my god i just want to hide in the closet yet at the very same time there's masses of people waking up like i've never seen in my short 52 years i mean speaking of social media i mean i don't use tiktok but allison does and she'll send me just weird i don't know just right right spacey shit you know just look at this weird post you know um and i'll look at that and it'll be some young person in their 20s who's i mean even things just like what's in antarctica and why why aren't we allowed to know you know there's right. like a 22 year old and right. the right. meaning of earth i mean just the meaning of everything right And you have people that are at least questioning now and many That's people right. are kind of getting sidetracked on all sorts of weird shit that's not actually going to affect change but the point is the minds are opening and the uh um, the can, legislation right. you know toward uh, psychedelics used intentionally and all of the positive things that are happening just people are really into spirituality i remember when i started on this path when the book the power of now came out it was just like i mean i guess it, it became a popular book but i remember first reading that and going like what you're not your mind. You know, that was a novel idea to me. There's this other thing, the pain body and the ego, and it puts so many pieces together. And now when I hear people talk, you know, speaking of social media, it's like, Everyone just understands that now. Right. And young people too. Yeah. It's not, not just the spiritual seekers going to Esalon and the right. Omega yeah, Institute. Absolutely. Right. It used to be like, well, there's this small subsect, a, a microculture of spiritual seekers. Right. They were kind of the new agey types or the personal development, more mainstream types with the Est and all that. Now you just have like regular people going, hmm, there's got to be more. Right. And they're, they're reaching out. And they're expanding, and and so as dark as things are getting, a, on the open. other side of the scale, it's like holy shit! And we got to hold. We're that stoked. Hope. We're stoked, and we got to you know? look high. If we right. look low, we go low. Right. That's something I need to get better at because we got to look right. There's it's a, a part of me that like I want to know the whole, uh, the whole uh, scope of what's happening. Right. I want to see the whole playing field. Right. But there's something instinctual in me that's like, let's look at all the dark shit. <laughs> you know and, I mean, and, and we can't look
0: away from that. You're the, right. In other dystopia is real. But there's kind and, of an addictive quality to and it. And there's an addictive quality to it. And so we need to kind of look really clearly and not look away at the genuine existential risks and the genuine there's sets of bad actors, and those are real, and we won't defeat that. And, and yes, there is there is a battle here. But it's not a battle which is a kind of propaganda battle, right? It's actually a standing for possibility if we don't actually see the dream and more than even seeing the dream, we have to live the dream. In, in other words, if we wait to live the dream when it's all perfect, so we're, we're kind of being activists and and we become very bitter, we defer the dream. Remember Langston used the, the black poet, What what happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun hmm. and then at the end of the poem explode? So you can only change the world if you're willing to already live in the world that's already changed. So I've got to, I've got to be the utopia, but not utopia in the kind of 20th century, you know, hijacked, you know, walled two way, but actually a genuine, healthy, whole, gorgeous utopia. I've got to live the dream. I've got to be homo amar. That's our language for it in cosmotic universe. I've got to be the new human. I've got, to, I've got to make love, right? I've got to be an activist. I've got to just be wildly excited about my food. Right? I've got to be wildly excited about feeding the next person. I've got to be just blown away by, by you know, by by, by creating my home, and the spaciousness of my. Home. I've got to live the dream, because if I don't live the dream, I don't know what the dream is. I can't, you know, in in the interior sciences, Sabbath. Every seven days, Sabbath is twenty-four hours. Was the technology of living the dream, and no matter where you were, what was going on, or what the brutality was, or what the specter of risk was, Sabbath, you step into the dream you step into the future world. So we have to, there's this kind of Doomer mentality that's kind of pervading, you know, so much of the conversation. No, 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 that's, that's a huge mistake, right? We've, we've got to live the dream and and face dystopia at the same time. We can only do that if we step into the field of value. And so all of these hopeful signs you point to are absolutely true and they will dissipate they won't coalesce. They won't become imaginal cells that generate a butterfly unless we articulate a new story of value that they can live in and articulate a new field of value. So that seems to be the, that's the overwhelming moral imperative. And in this podcast, we're, I mean, that's, I'm, we're excited to participate in that together. So very much enormous, so. We get to be excited.
1: Yeah, very much We're so. not naive.
0: It's not naive excitement. Right? We get to be excited. We get right. to be
1: evangelical even. It's not the spiritual bypassing love and light. Right, And That's it's right. also not the doom scrolling. It's not the doom scrolling. We're scroll. fucked either way. Why bother and just go into right. apathy and right. selfishness.
0: That's right. But it, it is, I mean, if we can claim that word, it's evangelical. But evangelical, you know, when I was, I took three years off at some point in my life, different conversation, different story, to actually feel like what would life look like not as a cultural critic, you know, you know world philosopher dude, you know, get a real job. So I got, a, I got a real job for three years. Right? What were you doing? Right, I so was, I was actually uh, working in the entrepreneurial world and oh, okay. involved in kind of companies. And so I, for three years, it was like age 30 to 33, I would visit Infinity Loop in Cupertino a lot, you know, which was Apple. And a you know, different conversation. Um, but so there were these, they were called Apple evangelists. That was the name in the company. And evangelists, as you and I both know, it's the good news. They were, sharing, and they were just so excited about Apple and I, of course, didn't quite understand the technology. So whenever I were all of it, I'd get into a conversation. I would just nod, <laughs> like excited. So I was the most popular guy because I would listen to all the techies telling their stories. But they were beautiful people, like wildly excited about techno-utopian possibilities. They were wrong about the details, but they were, they were evangelical, which was very beautiful. Right? And so we need to be evangelical, meaning we can't be embarrassed by the thought that there's good news. That's what evangel- evangelist is. There's good news. So we're not doomers. We're not Pollyannish right? We're not avoiding apocalypse, but we're actually evangelical. You can be a public intellectual and extremely rigorous and a philosopher and be filled with an evangelical fervor, which is the good news that human beings are beautiful. And there's a field of value we live in and the Tao is real, right? And and there's suffering, but suffering actually tells us that that goodness is real. And, and actually the story is going someplace and Telos is real. And, and there's a plot line to the story and we're part of it. And my story is part of it. That's gorgeous. And We need to tell that to our kids. Like that.
1: Amen, brother. Amen, or brother. Thank you for telling our podcast listeners today. Yeah, thank you for for having me oh, in your man. home and in your beautiful space. It's been so a delight. So fun. I love this, dude. I could do this forever. Crazy delight. Definitely going to have to do it again. Amen. I I know it's a good one and I've said this many times on the show like I always have my kind of manuscript. Right. Partly just so when you leave I'm not like ah but I didn't yeah, right. I don't I don't <laughs> like the sense of regret that comes with having a really important question but it's really fun when I just forget about that. Then I know we're in some deep water and oh my god, and moving through in a, in, in a different, uh, a different realm. So thank you so much. Uh, yeah, before totally. we go, please. You know, I was looking refreshing myself on your website, and I mean, you have a lot of content, a lot of books. You have courses. Uh, what are you most excited about right now? If people were intrigued Great. by your perspective oh, thanks, and, and yeah. want more of you, I say if I invite people to
0: read one thing or two things, I'd say there's a book called Your Unique Self which is on Amazon, and a book I wrote with my my beloved partner and deep partner in Muse, right? Christina Kincaid, Dr. Christina Kincaid, called A Return to Eros. So if
1: if you want a way into- I just got that uh, that audible, because I wanted to talk to you today, by the way, about just sex and love and relationships. Well, uh, well, let's do another one on that. Yeah, but then I realized, well, I want to to read the book or at least listen to the book. Um, I'm not that good at reading because of social media frying my brain, but uh, I can listen well. Yeah. But yeah, so- Actually, Our friend
0: Gabrielle Anwar actually is a wonderful person. Um, beautiful actress actually did this. She read it.
1: I started listening to it. In this great British accent. Yeah. It's, right? it's I know, wonderful. Right? Yeah. I, I got a few minutes into it and I realized, oh no, I need to finish this and then we'll have a conversation about So, so those that. two books, okay. we run once a year in Europe, actually, a mystery school
0: which we've been doing for the last decade, which is a deep dive intensive. So we'll send you a link to that. Oh, cool. And every week we run, you mentioned it, we do this thing called One Mountain Many Paths, you know, which is a kind of weekly kind of online. It's not really a podcast. You know, it's more of a kind of coming together in community and telling the new story of value. And every week we try and work out another piece of the Dharma as a kind of revolutionary, evolutionary act. Awesome.
1: Is that like a group Zoom kind of thing? It's a group or? Zoom kind oh, of thing, cool.
0: right? You know, my kind of partner in crime in a lot of this is a person that's also studied with me, you know, as a student and became a very close friend and interlocutor, Dr. Zach Stein, who's the co president of the center, who's a key partner in cosmoronic immunism. And of course, Christina Kincaid and, and John Mackey's been involved, and my, my friend Ken Wilbur and Sally Kempton. And, and so there's a, you know, Daniel Schmachtenberger, there's, there's a field of deep students, friends, partners, interlocutors, you know, because we never move down the field ourselves. And so I just want to honor, you know, Lori Galperin, you know, there's a whole gang. There's a few dozen people at the center of the think tank. You know, and the think tank is maybe the last sentence. The think tank is really a it's a cover. Right? There's a deeper conspiracy. (laughs) And the conspiracy is really just a band of unimaginably good human beings, you know, you know, who are all outrageous lovers. You know, just Depth and grounded, and and so, it just I, I could not be more honored to be surrounded by just such you know unimaginably good people. And actually, Aubrey, our our friend, is coming on board as the chair of the think tank. So he's kind oh, of cool. He's stepping in, and so like awesome. welcome, awesome. I, I look forward to Luke. This was just to uh, permit me a compliment. You were just a joy to talk to.
1: Oh, thank you and so just much. was a joy to
0: talk to both the thank questions and, and and just your, but more just your space. Just being in your space was a great joy. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, you so
1: much. Yeah. I wonder if there's uh you've probably teased this out, but I wonder if there's a more appropriate term than think take. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, it's not feel tank, because you're not just, ah, oh, I feel, you know. It's not action tank. There's thinking involved. And I've not been there, but just the way you describe kind of what you're yeah. doing in these partnerships, it's, you know, there's some other. It's a band of outrageous there's a, lovers. There's but, a yeah. something tank, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's no, like, no, you're, you're absolutely right. So no, I know you guys are doing more
0: than thinking. Yeah, you're yeah, no, you're no, being, you're feeling, you're thinking, you're creating. You're absolutely right. I mean, the truth is, is that we use the word think tank, because of it does also function as a think tank, but there's really no word for it. Right there's a, a gentleman named Philip Wexler who wrote a book called, um, you know, spiritual societies and it's, what does it mean? You know, you're in the Renaissance, you're in Florence, right? And you know, Paul Tillich, you know, who's a theologian but also was a little bit of a cultural historian, points out that there were Luke not more than a thousand people in the Renaissance who were really players in the Renaissance. You think it was this? It was not a broad movement. Oh, really? It's about a thousand people, really major players and. Wow. Everyone else is just getting drunk in Florence and doing what you do in Florence, right? So the Medici's, of course, you know, enacted it. So so what does it mean, you know, when there's a kind of evolutionary community? We don't quite have a word for it. It's not a church. It's not a cult. There's no charismatic leader. There's right (laughs) right. And it's the center of the center of the movement is not the teacher, it's the Dharma itself. Right. It's very beautiful. Yeah. Right? You know, in the ark and the Hebrew wisdom tradition. In the ark, you don't have the rabbi; you have the scrolls. Right? And so they, at the center is not the charismatic teacher; it's the charismatic dharma, and it's like a karate dojo. So, anyone in our system, for example, wants to challenge me. Challenge me, and if you're right, gorgeous. Let's let's evolve the dharma. So it's very very beautiful in that way. But you're right. I love I love your inquiry at the, you know that ends us, which is we don't quite have a word for it. It's the, uh, de Chardin, Ter de Chardin. You know the evolutionary paleontologist who was important in evolutionary theory you know talks about the almost sensual yearning for the communion of evolutionary activists right you know our desire to actually be in this this field of community we have to we find each other so we found each other we're allured to each other and so it's a it's an evolutionary community right it's a think tank it's a spiritual community it's a cultural critic community it's a but it's none of those it's more than all of those so i i love your pointing to the fact that we haven't worded it yet yeah and and it's it's still in that ineffable and in that beauty yeah,
1: yeah. well some sometimes the best things are ineffable and you just right? kind of have to throw a a label right. on it so it gives people some right. semblance of an idea of what they can expect. That's know? right. right. I mean, I
0: mean, you can't actually fund a band of outrageous lovers. Yeah. Harder, right? so, <laughs> totally. right? and, we, and we need
1: to resource it. Totally. Right? So, I'd, I'd probably invest. Yeah, send there me, we are. Send me the deck. Send me the deck. All right, oh you guys, God. we're going to put everything that uh, Mark just talked about at LukeStory.com slash Goffney. That's G-A-F-N-I. So uh, we'll put links to all of the things that he just mentioned Thank and you. anything else we can find to put in there. I know you named so many uh, relevant historical figures, most of which I've never heard of. But I trust yeah. that they're important because of what you've derived from their perspectives. But we're going to fill oh, the show notes with a bunch of goodies.
0: That's awesome. And to have one ten 10 seconds? Take all the time you want. In the public culture, you always deal with kind of public culture, which mediates facts through a kind of strange social media broken prism. So I, I've actually had the, you know, quite painful privilege of, being also attacked and falsely attacked. And, you know, I'm sure some of the listeners that I, whenever I do a podcast, there's always some people who kind of encounter that. So I would actually, you know, I did a wonderful podcast, which actually our, our friend Aubrey initiated with Christina, Dr. Kincaid, and myself. And maybe we'll put that up there also. So if, Absolutely. Anyone's, if anyone's interested in kind of like, oh, hmm, yeah. right? So if you kind of, you know, friends, Romans, and countrymen, if you, you run into kind of, kind of online controversy, you want to get a sense of it. You know, first of all, anyone's always invited to call me directly. Right? Two is there's an entire website called Who is Mark Gaffney, which just kind of refutes just the objective kind of false constructions on the internet. But my partner KK is far more beautiful and subtle and wise and eloquent. And she, she, her and Aubrey talk really beautiful, beautifully in this this podcast, maybe we'll post that there for anyone. Absolutely, who's, anyone who's interested.
1: Absolutely, yay! Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Thank you for that. And it's unfortunate that uh, you've had to bear that cross as well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, not, not
1: to be melodramatic, but right, you right, know, right. Yeah, I mean, who's without controversy? Yeah, it's painful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, thanks, dude. Thank you. Great, man. great dropping in with you. I can't wait to do this again. Madly it was really great. Thank you. Right on. Yay. Well, my friends, if that one didn't provoke some deep contemplation inside your heart, mind, and soul, I don't know what will. As for me, this was an incredibly expansive episode. I felt like it pushed me to the edges of my understanding and also helped put some pieces of my worldview in place. I mean, what a blessing this was. And if you're enjoying the Lifestylist podcast, I'd be so grateful if you'd take a moment to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app of choice. Now, this might not seem like a big contribution, but trust me, in the world of podcasting, ratings and reviews are everything. When a listener like you takes just a minute to offer support in this way, it helps the show reach new people by rating higher in iTunes. And a little inside scoop here, that's why we host frequently make this request, and frankly, I often forget. I've never liked the idea of doing a paid podcast, using Patreon, etc. And I really enjoy offering this content for free, and I plan to continue to do so. But leaving a rating and review is a really easy way for you to support the show without having to spend a dime. Now, if you want to support our show sponsors, that's great too. But the lowest hanging fruit for you is definitely dropping a quick review. And this also gives me some great feedback for the direction of the show, which helps me deliver the best possible podcast I can. So thank you in advance for your support with the ratings and reviews. Keep them coming. All right, next week's episode is a real barn burner. If you're into the most cutting edge healing technology, this one's gonna knock your socks off, folks. I'm talking about episode 474, Advanced Light, Sound, and Frequency Technologies, A New Paradigm of Healing with Aaron Cameron. I recorded next week's show on a recent visit to my old hometown of Los Angeles, California at Aaron's wildly cool Q360 Club in Malibu. And man, I gotta say the stuff we got into out there was freaking wild, so I can't wait to share it with you. I'll be back with number 474 early Tuesday morning, and until then, I wish you and yours the best week ever.